Welcome to my, uh, these are my luxurious accommodations here, since I'm broadcasting in the middle of the day when my children are awake. Uh, I am broadcasting from my study slash spare bedroom here uh, uh, in uh, the Tolkien Professor household, um, rather than, that is to say, the glamorous <laughs> walk-in closet in which I normally broadcast my Mythgard classes. Uh, so, uh, so welcome, everybody. Happy New Year. Uh, we are here to talk about the movie today and sort of general questions uh, about adaptation and stuff. And let me start off just by giving a little outline as to what we're going to do. Um, I, I want to start off, you know, I, I, I've received a lot of notes and emails and things with people who have different concerns and questions, and I really want, I want to address as much of that as possible, but I don't just kind of want to go through and address individual concerns in, in a kind of random order. I really want to sort of talk about bigger things uh, primarily, and in the course of talking about some of these larger theoretical ideas in uh, thinking about the films and how we can approach the films, I want to sort of give some general, um, some general advice and thoughts about that, about how we approach this whole question uh, and the question of the films in particular. Um, and then after, after we think a little bit about you know, what we're doing and how we go about doing it, then I want to move on to discuss uh, some aspects of the film in particular to do some analysis of some of the major themes of the film uh, and compare some of those to the books. I found those uh, very interesting and rewarding, so I'm looking forward to doing that. And I hope that over the course of sort of these first two sections of uh, what I want to talk about today, that many of your particular concerns and questions will be addressed at various points. Um, but at the end, um, after we do all those things, I want to open it up uh, for more of you guys. I have some other things that um, uh, that you guys uh, have uh, have asked, so I have some other things to kind of throw in there at the end. But also, I want to hear from the people who are live with me here today, what you guys uh, have to say about it. Um, now, I say hear from you guys live, so let me explain to those of you who are new to this. This is uh, uh, this is our, our Mythgard Institute interface. This is how I do my classes. So in my Hobbit class, for instance, you know, I'm here lecturing. I usually have a PowerPoint presentation where we're looking at particular passages from the text during the course of class. Um, I, uh, uh, I don't have that today because we're just going to talk about some general uh, things from the movies. But, um, but the other thing that is important for you to know about is you'll see the, uh, the little section on your control panel, which is called Questions. Uh, and that's the place where you can, uh, you can enter stuff which will come straight to me. Um, so if you, if you type in uh, stuff in the questions box and put uh, submit, I'll get that. Keep in mind there are a lot of you. We've got 71 people uh, here today in the live section. I, I can't promise to get to everything that everybody says, uh, but I've got, uh, I've got uh, Trish here helping me to sort of sift through things and uh, hopefully we'll be able to, uh, to, to get to as many as possible. So, but I'm, but I'm warning you at the beginning, I'm, I have, you know, I'm going to kind of go into lecture mode here for a little bit here at the beginning, so I'm not going to be responding to, uh, um, I'm not going to be responding to your individual comments right away at the beginning, and then I hope to do a little bit more uh, give and take towards the end. So anyway, that's kind of the overview of where we're going to be headed and a little bit of an introduction to how you uh, go about entering stuff. Let me start off by talking about uh, what I'm not going to do uh, in today's session. First, and most simply, I'm not going to speculate about films two and three. A lot of you have asked questions about that. What do I think they're going to do with Thran? What do I think they're going to do with the Battle of Five Armies? You know, what do I think they're going to do with Smaug? I'm not going to go there. 
I'm not going to talk about that. And the reason I'm not going to talk about that is that we have dozens of riddles in the, in the dark episode in which Dave and Trish and I are going to be spending hours and hours and hours speculating about this stuff. So there is a forum for that, but it isn't here. Here I want to specifically talk about our reactions to the first film. Uh, and we will have an entire year, uh, you know, looking forward to another year of riddles in the dark and speculating about film two. So don't ask questions about speculations because I'm not going to answer them uh, right now. Um, oh, and yes, a special good morning to people uh, who are joining us, uh, like Chris, uh, all the way from uh, New Zealand and Australia. I know it's fairly early in the morning tomorrow down there, so I always appreciate. I'm always uh, appreciative of people who uh, make a special effort to, you know, to join us uh, in, you know, very different time zones at what are often very awkward times. Just like I always have great compassion and great admiration for. Uh, my Mythgard students, I usually teach my class at 9.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time, and uh, those Europeans uh, who stay up until 2.30 in the morning to join us live for class always have my great admiration. So anyway, thanks guys for joining us. Okay, so I said, number one thing I'm not going to talk about is speculation. Number two thing uh, that I'm not going to do, I'm not going to pretend that I'm a film critic and sort of presume to tell you what worked and didn't work in terms of technical matters of film craft. For one thing, I am way too much of an amateur for that. I am not a movie guy. I am not a movie expert. Um, I, you know, I just, I, I don't even really watch all that many movies. That's not, that's not my thing. That's not my whole angle on this. And if you're interested in analysis of that kind, you can find many people who know far more about that than I do. Um, so, you know, a lot of you have asked about, you know, what I thought about the high frame rate and uh, the 3D and everything else. Um, you know, that's, I, I, I mean, I can tell you what I personally thought. I liked it. You know, I, I thought it was great. Um, I had no problems whatsoever with it. But I'll come back to that uh, in a second about my not having problems with things. Um, one thing I will say, conceptually speaking, I liked it. Um, you know, one of the complaints that I hear people make about the high frame rate is, well, you know, it doesn't look like a movie. It looks like, you know, somebody, you know, holding like a, you know, like a cheap camera. Conceptually, I like that, actually. I thought that that worked. Um, you know, to me, one of the interesting things about The Hobbit is the way in which we are being invited into a sub-creation, being invited into a fantasy world. And I think that one of the elements that people object to about the high frame rate is that it loses that, well, that veneer of artificiality that movies have. Movies don't look like real life. Um, you know, you, you, when you look at a movie screen, you don't mistake it for the world around you. The way it works, the depth of it, you know, whether it's 2D or 3D, that you know, the blurriness of the screen, it's just not, you know, it's, it, you know, you can tell the difference when you look up and when you look, you know, down at the world around you. Um, and that's a convention, you know, and that's, that's, you know, that's, that's fine. I have no problem with that as a convention. But I kind of liked the fact that by increasing the frame rate, Jackson actually reduced that air of artificiality and uh, really kind of invited us. I think there, there are ways in which it really kind of confronts um, the, the sort of the, the real world and the fantasy world um, in ways that I thought were very interesting. Maybe you didn't like it. Maybe you did like it. I don't know. Um, but uh, and I have found from everything I've heard, and I've heard from dozens of people about this. Um, it seems to be very personal. I mean, everybody, you know, as far as many people who really hate it, there are people who really loved it. And, you know, I, so, uh, you know, I, I don't have very strong opinions on that subject. And as I say, I'm not an expert on that anyway. Um, but I mentioned about how I'm going to get back to my not being bothered by things. 
I will also admit that in addition to not being a uh, much of a movie critic, I'm actually not much of a critic of anything. Uh, classically, being a critic means assigning praise or blame to people. Like a literary critic was, you know, somebody. This was a, a this this that that job that job description was established in the 18th century, uh, and uh, basically, you know, it meant somebody who reads books and then criticize, you know, critiques them, criticizes them, says what are the virtues and what are the blemishes uh, of that piece of writing, and basically, you know, tells everybody else what, uh, not exactly tells everybody else what they should think about it, but kind of does, you know, to sort of tell the general public, this is official, I give this the stamp of approval, this is a good book, and this other book is not a good book, I, you know, you shouldn't read that. Um, and, I, you know, there might be a place for that, but it's not what I do. It's not what I like doing at all. Um, I, uh, it's you know certainly not about film, but but not even about literature. For me, when I'm reading a book or when I'm watching a movie, what I'm interested in is what is the story saying? Um, what's the story? And by that I mean more than just the plot. You know, the sequence of events. And that's sort of what happens on a on a on a on a on an event-by-event -event basis, but what happens uh, conceptually, thematically, what kind of story is unfolding um, over the, in, in, in the course of this movie, when we, when we sort of see, is, you know, what's going on, I say that words I use are really vague about this, what are the ideas, what are the concepts? Um, and, you know, when I'm thinking about this, I can remain blissfully unmoved by technical defects in a work of art. So I could be watching a film. This has happened before. Um, one very, very salient example I remember. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm an enormous fan of the book Dracula by Bram Stoker. It's uh, one of my favorite books. I think it's, a, it's just a brilliant book. And, uh, and, and so I have a kind of light hobby of, uh, of interest in vampire movies, really liking to see how that story and the idea of vampires, most of which really goes back to Bram Stoker, is sort of adapted and, uh, and, and redone. I remember the first time I saw Wes Craven's film, Dracula 2000. I was really excited. I loved it. And I was, I was, I was really, because I thought it was fascinating. It was a really, really interesting look at, uh, at, at, at vampires and the way that it was interacting with the book I thought was really fascinating. And I watched it with my wife and she was like, at the end she was like, gosh, that movie was terrible. I'm like, really? And she said, yeah, I mean, the acting was awful and the writing was awful. And I was like, well, I guess. But the ideas were really cool. I mean, I can, I can, uh, I, as I said, I can, I can remain blissfully unmoved by these things. You know, it's the same thing, you know, people, you know, I, I, there are a lot of people that I know, especially a lot of other uh, literature professors who, who really, um, you know, will sort of turn their noses up at books, you know, which have bad writing, which have bad prose. And again, you know, sometimes that bothers me, but often it doesn't bother me. And if there's something going on in the story, if the story is doing interesting things, um, then, I, you know, I can put up with some pretty serious defects in style uh, in order to get at that. Um, so again, because to me, getting at sort of the heart of things, getting at the story, getting at the meaning is what I'm really interested in. Um, so, you know, in many ways, I actually think that, uh, most of the reactions that I've heard, most of the negative reactions I've heard about the Hobbit film are all things which just didn't trouble me very much. It's not that I disagree that they're blemishes. I mean, you know, was the, was the you know, people complain about the, the, the stone giant boxing match and people complain about the, you know, the, the Goblin Town roller coaster ride and people complain about, um, 
you know, this, all of this, you know, all of these kinds of things. Um, but, you know, I found these really kind of superficial, mostly. Another one, um, the, 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 the bunny sled chase scene. Um, I, you know, I certainly wasn't troubled by any of the, these things sufficient to, to emerge from the film disliking it. I, I was completely able to look past those things. I have to admit, of, these, of those three examples I gave, the, the stone giants, the, the, the goblin roller coaster, and the bunny sled um, chase scene, I was most bothered by the third of those, mostly because that actually did for me get in the way, not just because it was kind of an action sequence which which I didn't like all that much or couldn't really get into, but because it didn't make sense. I kept being annoyed by the fact that Radagast had just said he was going to lead them away and he keeps leading them right back to them. I was like, I mean, it's like, whatever else you can say about Radagast's uh, performance in this film, he certainly uh, did the worst job ever of <laughs> leading people away and creating a diver at least effective diversion ever. Um, but uh, anyway, so that that kind of it, it got in the way a little bit. But um, but I said, but generally, those kinds of things I found very super superficial, and I don't. You know, in some ways, I'm not even all that interested to talk about them. I mean, it's. I mean, I, I, I can sympathize with people for whom they were kind of getting in the way, but again, for me, they really just weren't. Um, now, I will, however, mention one thing um, that uh, you know the the, the, the sort of the, the, the biggest critique that I've heard, which with which I really agree. Um, you know, my the, the most severe thing I would say about the film is that I think that the tone didn't really work. The tone was kind of awkward. And let me explain what I mean by this. I felt that Peter Jackson was trying to have it both ways. Um, that he, although he was trying to do, you know, to, to do a film in the epic mode of the Lord of the Rings films, and he was also trying to retain these light-hearted comedic touches from the Hobbit, the original published Hobbit. And I think there that he was trying to sort of have his cake and eat it too in a way that didn't actually work. Um, or does it? It's not that it didn't it fail to work all the time, but there were definitely moments when I felt it did not work very well. Um, there were some times when it was fine. I quite enjoyed the chip the glasses and crack the plate scene. I thought that worked very well in many ways. Um, I thought the trolls were quite good. I liked the trolls. Um, I thought the Goblin King's death in particular was, to me, the most glaring example of sort of the failure of the conflict of these two modes, where we have this, um, you know, this epic action sequence culminating in a slapstick moment. Um, and I just that um, trying trying to do two trying to do two modes at once um, just really didn't work for me in that way. And that particular moment, um, I thought, was for me the most jarring. Um, but you know, in general, you're not going to hear me uh, sort of critiquing the film a whole. That is, and I'm not going to you know rattle off a list of sort of negative things and things I didn't like about it. Because again, that's not. That's not what I do. It's not what I do uh, when I teach. That's not what I do when I write my books. That's just not what I do. What I what I like to do is to think about the ideas, to think about the themes, to think about the meanings. And on those levels, I found this movie very successful, uh, and also I will say up front, very faithful, uh, much more faithful than I expected uh, to Tolkien's work. Um, and so, for for, for that. Boy, I would be willing to overlook three times as many other uh, what I consider superficial 
unpleasantnesses or inconveniences uh, along the way. Um, I, so anyway, and I understand not everybody looks at things the way that I do, and that's fine, but that certainly is the way that I look at that. Um, now let me uh, move on to sort of the primary point that I want to make about approaching the films. This is, that's all been sort of under the subheading of what I'm not going to talk about and what I'm not going to do. The primary point that I want to make is about is something that I've said on many other occasions before, but I want to kind of expand it a little bit and, 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 and really kind of unfold it a little bit more. I've often said the, a movie is different from the book. The first thing you have to keep in mind when you are going to see a film adaptation of a book is that you are not seeing the book on screen. And it is not fair to evaluate the thing that you are seeing as if it were simply a transposition of the book on screen. It's not a, it's not a, it's, it's, it's not a translation. It's, it's an adaptation. It's a retelling. Okay? Um, this is another version of the story. This is not Tolkien. This is Peter Jackson's retelling of Tolkien's story on screen. And those are two different things. We've got a different person retelling the story, and we've got a different medium in which the story is being told. Those are both huge things. Now, let me start off by saying I, I absolutely have sympathy with all of you purists out there who, you know, sort of have a, a bunch of different kinds of sort of astonished reactions um, to to the movie, you know, the, who's, who, who get really bothered by all of the things that the films get wrong, the things that the films change. Um, and, and I totally, I, 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 I used to be that way, although especially, I will say, especially when I was in high school, I was absolutely insufferable. I mean completely insufferable. And just, I, you know, I, I, thank goodness, and I am sure all of my friends and relations, thank goodness, that the Tolkien, the theme of the Lord of the Rings films didn't come out when I was in high school, because boy, I would have been all, I would have been just insufferable. Um, because I, I, I really get it. I used to look at stories, especially the stories that I loved and admired, you know, as this kind of monolith, approaching them almost like a sacred text, not in the sense of holding them sacred or worshiping them or something like that, but in, in, this, you know, in the way in which uh, you know, someone goes to a sacred text in order to sort of check chapter and verse on things. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I would, I would sort of go back and check. You know, and see, you know, when I when I would he, see a, a film adaptation or um, you know hear somebody talking about it, like, oh, no, they, you know, this is that that's incorrect. I, I can go back and I can show you why that's incorrect. Let me explain sort of a little bit more about what made the difference in my life. What kind of changed my own outlook uh, from having that perspective towards adaptations, because it's changed quite a bit since then. And the main eye-opening experience I had was studying medieval literature in college. That was the first time I really studied medieval literature, and of course, as most of you know, I went on to get my PhD in medieval literature because I really loved it. But the approach to stories that we see in the Middle Ages was kind of a revelation to me, and it really changed the paradigm of how I approach stories in general, and certainly how I approach retellings and adaptations. In the Middle Ages, they loved retelling great stories. Um, in fact, you know, we, we, we sort of talk about creativity, and one of the things we always uh, are, you know, we really value in a story, one of the first questions that we ask is, how original is it? Um, is this a new idea? Um, you know, what's fresh about this? 
and uh, that's like exactly the opposite of what they would have said about a, a great storyteller, a great writer, a great poet uh, in the Middle Ages. They would have said like, oh, is, is this person doing something different from everybody else? No, that's actually not a good thing. Um, uh, that's cheap. Um, a great writer is one who's going to retell a great story. Um, you know, and this is this is why you get this is why you get people like Chaucer, one of the one of the most inventive poets of the Middle Ages, uh, who, you know, is continually retelling other people's stories. And in fact, it, you know, in in uh, one of my favorite Chaucer poem is Troilus and Crusade. It's a it's a wonderful, wonderful um, one of the only long poems that Chaucer ever finished. Uh, and in that poem, he's adapting a poem from Boccaccio. He's not making it up. Um, but there are, there are moments when he is departing quite widely from his source and really writing new stuff. And guess what he does in that moment? He makes up a source. He pretends he's translating from another Latin original, uh, you know, an, an, a, a fictitious author named Lollius, whom he invents, uh, uh, because he doesn't want to like be seen as making something up. It's not cool to make something up in the Middle Ages. Anyway, they loved this. And we're not just talking about taking a common tradition and retelling versions of it. We're talking about it, situations that are actually kind of similar to this one, a work which is a great work and which people love, not just as a story, but as a work of art in its own telling. I'm thinking in particular of the Aeneid. Virgil's poem, the Aeneid, the, the Latin epic, was without question the number one work of literature of the Middle Ages. I mean, this was, this was the standard for literary excellence. Virgil was everybody's favorite poet in the Middle Ages. Um, but yet, even that story, that story which not only is a classic story, but which was told in, you know, in, in, with the literary excellence, which for them defined literary excellence, got retold again and again in the 12th century. Um, we get this really long French rhyming uh, poem called the Roman Denaeus, which is a really long, like a 400-page poem, um, doing a retelling of the Aeneid um, in French verse. And it's, it completely recasts the story. I mean, you, you want to talk about, like, you know, people say, oh, you know, like Tolkien is spinning in his grave. Boy, Virgil would have been spinning in his grave with some of the things that were done to his characters in story in the Roman Denaeus. We've got, you know, I mean, there's this awesome scene where, uh, where Aeneas and Lavinia are turned into these like 12th century courtly lovers, and you've got you've got Lavinia up in the up in a tower window, looking down at studly Aeneas riding by on his horse and his armor, and uh, and she's like, oh, and then she has this touching you know conversation with her nurse confidant about her lover and how can she possibly convey a message to him? And it's just it's it's, it's hilarious. They, they they make this story into a 12th century chivalric romance. Um, and that was fine. There was no insult intended to the Aeneid. This was not a supplanting of the Aeneid. This was a retelling of the Aeneid. This was done not out of disrespect to the Aeneid, but as an act of respect in its way to the, to the Aeneid. It is a measure of the greatness of the story that it is going to be, that it's going to be, the greater the story is, the more often it's going to be retold, and the more different ways it can be deployed, uh, and sort of circumstances in which it can be placed. 
you know, the, 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 the King Arthur tradition, of course, is one of the classic examples. I mean, it's probably the ultimate example in the Middle Ages of a story that's told version after version, all from different perspectives, all doing different things, thinking through different aspects of the story, recasting characters, reinventing characters, inventing new characters, and inserting them in. Uh, like when Lancelot pops up onto the scene uh, in the 12th century, and that actually, that story is a really good example. Um, that, that story, I mean, Chrétien de Troyes' uh, poem Lancelot or the Knight of the Cart, um, which was the first time the character of Lancelot is invented. And he is invented solely in order to give an adulterous courtly lover who can be there to have a scandalous relationship with the queen. Um, and why did he do that? You know, is this an act of disrespect to the Arthurian tradition? Boy, they, you know, there are people who would not have liked the Arthurian, you know, story. I'm sure other uh, people who wrote the Arthur story who would not have thought of it as, you know, been very interested in seeing it turn into an adulterous courtly love romance. Um, but Chrétien de Troyes, in a brilliant poem, the, the Night of the Cart is a wonderful, wonderful story. Um, but, of course, he's doing things in that point, and he is interested in certain ideas. And one of the things that he is doing is using the Arthurian story as a backdrop against which he can play out this courtly love story and really, I think, my argument anyway, really examine closely and invite us to examine courtly love, the whole courtly love idea um, and, its, and its ramifications. Anyway, like I say the point is, this is the life of a mythic story. When you have a great story, people want to retell it. Um, this is, I think, also part of the, uh, you know, the, the, the impulse which has been so scathingly branded fan fiction in the modern world. There's, 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 um, there's not much greater of an insult that you can lay upon a piece of work than to call it mere fan fiction uh, in uh, modern literary circles. You know, that impulse is the survivor of a long-standing tradition. Um, and I actually think it's kind of a shame that it uh, sort of has the, the current status that it has um, in literary circles, both among writers and among readers, um, because I think it's actually a very healthy impulse, and it's a very interesting impulse. Um, you know, so anyway, um, if you're own, but here's my Here's my larger point about this, and I guess so. All of this, you know, reading all these things, coming back to all these stories, seeing how these work out again and again, um, really beginning to to get into medieval literature and 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 you know, doing some studies and looking at doing careful readings of different versions of the Arthurian story, for instance, really kind of getting into how is this story developing and changing? What's Chrétien de Troyes doing with this? What's Mallory doing with this? What can we see going on in the French Vulgate cycle? You know, it's take some particular characters, look at Lancelot and how he's uh, discussed in each one of those three things. Let's look at like the, the, the Grail stories. How do they talk about the, the Grail? How do they talk about Lancelot? How, they, how do they talk about Galahad once he's invented? Um, you know, all of these things. Um, it becomes, in fact, really rich and really interesting. Um, but if you're only thinking about the one first version, if you're still just kind of coming back to that and comparing everything else that is said or written to that as if it were a kind of sacred text, you can't enjoy it. Um, in fact, you can. my argument is that you can barely even experience it, really. Um, so to bring it back to the Hobbit film, if you go to the Hobbit film and your head is full of nothing but tabulations of differences, if all you're doing, um, whether you set out to do this or not, if all you're doing is sitting there saying, that's different, that's different, that's different, 
that's different. You're not paying attention. You're not able to even really appreciate this story, whether you end up appreciating it in the sense of liking it or not. Um, but you, can, you, don't, you, you won't even have a basis on which to form an opinion because you won't have paid attention to the story that is unfolding in front of you. Um, so that is my number one appeal as you, as you approach the film, as you think about the film. My number one appeal is no matter what you think of the books, you know, no matter how dear to you the books are, attempt to put them aside and just pay attention. Just open yourself up to what is there on the screen. Don't, don't try not to indulge any kind of knee-jerk reactions. Of course there are going to be differences. You're braced for that. Look at the story that's unfolding. Think about that story on its own terms as much as you can. Then you can go back and you can compare it with profit. Then you've got something to talk about. Then you've got something to think about. Not just a kind of a list of superficial similarities and differences, but an actual substantive thoughtful, here's what the film is doing, here's what the book is doing, and uh, now let's look at the similarities and differences. And, and my primary premise is that when you do that, when you can approach the films like that, then it ends up enriching your experience of both stories. Not only do you have a much more nuanced and rich appreciation of the film itself, but the books also. And this is the thing that I always come back to, no matter what you might think the vices or shortcomings of this film or the Lord of the Rings films might be. If you approach it in this spirit, it will, I promise, it will actually improve and enrich your understanding of the Lord of the Rings books. Many of the things that I dislike most about the Lord of the Rings films have helped me to appreciate better what Tolkien is doing because it draws attention to them. Even just by, by doing a careful observation of the film and looking at what the film is doing, even if you find that thing that it's doing unconvincing or inadequate or you find it moving in a direction which is very different from the direction that Tolkien was, was moving, you know what that has done? It has helped to draw your attention to the direction that Tolkien is moving. And I know for myself there are many things that I don't think I would have noticed. Observations I would never have made about Tolkien's books if I hadn't been doing that kind of comparison, if I hadn't had the films to kind of stimulate that. Um, and I think, so for me, it's one of the primary reasons why the films are always a net gain. If they're interestingly and thoughtfully done, and these are interestingly and thoughtfully done, even if you end up disliking them, even if you end up disagreeing with them, that's okay, that's fine, um, but think about them. Now, um, one last thing I want to say about that, you know, sort of my, the end of my uh, my sort of direct appeal to uh, uh, to to sort of people with these kind of purist um, inclinations. I don't want to act like I don't sympathize with the purist response. I don't want to oversimplify it. You know, it's easy to you know, it's easy for me to say like, oh, well, it's just a knee jerk reaction. It's not just a knee jerk reaction. I do get why it matters. Um, I, I really do. I know that for many people, this film will be the face of the Hobbit. You know, that there will be many people who watch the Lord of the Rings films and watch the Hobbit films and never read Tolkien and think that they know Tolkien and think that they understand this and they will draw some conclusions and leap to, leap to some, you know, some, some, some conclusions about Tolkien based only on these films and that that 
would drive, if you love Tolkien, would drive you crazy. Um, and believe me, I totally get that. I totally understand that that matters. Um, you know, I mean, I am the kind of person, as you might guess, who really loves talking about this stuff. And so, you know, when I, when I, if, if I, like, one of the worst things, if I happen to be sitting in a place where I overhear people talking about this, I had this one horrible experience once where I was in, I was an airport, maybe a train station, some kind of public transportation building. And I'm sitting there, and there are these people sitting next to me talking about Tolkien. And I was, you know, I'm trying to listen. I'm not, you know, I don't want to eavesdrop on people, but they're sitting right next to me. And I hear one of them say, oh, yes, uh, Tolkien really disliked the Chronicles of Narnia because Lewis was a Christian and Tolkien hated Christianity. And I was sitting there like, <laughs> strangling and swallowing my tongue. <laughs> and in the end, I, 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 it causes me physical pain to hear people say things which are so wrong. <laughs> and so eventually, like, you know, unless my wife is with me to, to uh, place her prudent and wise restraining hand upon me, I, 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 I did interrupt these people. I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That is wrong. <laughs> that is not true. Um, and needless to say, they you know, looked at me like I was carrying a strange and probably contagious disease. But the point is, I do understand that, uh, that this stuff matters. And I, and I, I, I get the frustration uh, that people who love the books have if you don't love the movies and you feel like the movies are not doing justice to it. I understand that. Um, but I think that there is a positive way to deal with that, too, that there's a way that that can be done with, you know, rather than just allowing yourself to become a grump and to grumble about the movies anytime they're mentioned, or like bite off the heads of anybody who says they like the films. Can I understand those things? But there are better ways uh, to approach that situation. Um, so, and I'll come back to that uh, uh, later on. Um, I've mentioned the inevitability of changes uh, in the film. That that's one of the things that we have to confront. That the film is going to be different. You cannot expect it to be the same as the book. It's not just, you know, the book projected onto a screen. Um, and, you know, but I still hear sometimes people say, but, you know, but okay, why? I understand it's a different mode, but why do they have to make these changes? Um, one thing, there are two things um, that I think um, are clear and obvious things. And one thing that I would really want to emphasize is they have their own story to tell. That is, the script writers, Peter Jackson and company, have their own story to tell. And you know what? That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Um, I, let me give uh, an illustration, and I don't want to get too far onto this tangent because there's a lot that could be said in this direction in many ways. Um, because I'm going to bring up Harry Potter. Uh, I like the Harry Potter books. Uh, I am a Harry Potter a, a Harry Potter liker, uh, not a Harry Potter lover. Um, I don't love Harry Potter, but I like it. Um, and uh, my nine-year-old son and I had just finished the Harry Potter books, all seven of the Harry Potter books, and I waited until after he had finished all of the Harry Potter books to reveal to him the fact that the movies existed. Um, and uh, so he was very excited to discover that there were movies uh, of the books after we finished reading them, and so we've been watching the films together. Um, and we just watched uh, The Order of the Phoenix last night. And I will say, I don't think that the Harry Potter films are very good in general, and I think that the Harry Potter films are not very good um, for exactly the, uh, the reason that I was just pointing to, that most of those films don't really have their own story to tell, and it makes them into bad films. Um, a 
film which just tries to do a visualized heavy abridgment of a book. And it has to be heavily abridged because you only have about a tenth the amount of time. Um, even a film that's two and a half hours long, well, the book, when read aloud, which I know because I was listening to the unabridged recordings, um, is like 23 hours long or more. Some, some of them are like 28 hours long. So you're able, you have about a tenth the time at most in which to tell uh, something which approximates the same story. Um, and many of the Harry Potter movies have really struck me as largely incoherent because they don't tell their own stories. It's not a movie that has anything to do other than to try to put the book on screen. Um, and I find, I have found them very unsatisfying for that ways. I think that The Hobbit film in particular, one of the things that I like best about it is the story that they're telling. I think the story that they tell and what they do with Bilbo's character in particular and Thorin's character is on its own, independent of the books really interesting and really well done. I like it, and I would like it, I think, if I hadn't read the books. Um, and even having read the books, I still like it. Um, so that, I think, is a good thing. But again, that's what a retelling is. People want to retell it. Why did Peter Jackson choose to do these films? Just because he wanted to try to, like, you know, hold up the book and project the No, because these stories meant something to him, and he wanted to, 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 to retell the story. You know, he had that same impulse, that same impulse that so many medieval authors had, you know, reading this book and loving this story, and they want to do this story. They want to do a version of this story. They want to, they want to sort of put some of the things that this story means to them uh, down on the page, or in this case, up on the screen. And that's good. That makes it a good story. But the second thing, of course, and it's really, it's easy for people to underestimate this, is the shift in medium. I mean, the fact is that has a huge consequence to storytelling. Whenever, you know, different media that you use for telling stories have vastly different, you know, give you vastly different resources as a storyteller and very different limitations to work within. If you're writing a book, if you're writing a novel versus writing a short story versus writing a poem versus performing, you know, a live act of storytelling in person, uh, you know, where you have other resources like facial expression and gesture and tone of voice, um, but you have also uh, many more limitations in how much you can do and where you can go, um, that to stage play production, to film, all of these things have very different character, you know, again, different resources and different limitations. And there are choices that they're going to have to make in order to try to accommodate those restrictions and to take advantage of those resources. Um, and let me point to two factors, I think, that play a pretty big um, role in the Hobbit film and also in the Lord of the Rings films. And that is the relationship of the story to space and time. Um, and this, I think, is fairly consistent. Whether you, again, whether you like it or not, that's up to you. But it's pretty clear that Peter Jackson and his team have shown that they, in order to emphasize the story that they're trying to tell, they are very willing to sacrifice precision in time and space. Um, and this is something that's easy to get annoyed by if you know the books really well. Um, and you know the map really well, and you know the chronology really well. Um, it's easy to get annoyed. 
but I think we have to be careful. I, just to, to, let me give some examples, so I'm not just being vague here. In the Lord of the Rings films, we can see this. Um, like, I mean, I remember kind of chuckling at this moment when I watched the Fellowship of the Ring movie for the first time. Um, Gandalf's little, like when he pops into Minas Tirith at the beginning, you know, when he leaves Frodo and is like, I have to look into this ring thing, and then whoop, Harry is topping the rise to Minas Tirith. Just took a journey of, of you know, a couple of months, and uh, but there he is, snap, um, and then he immediately pops back in, and very little time seems to have passed. I mean, it's uncertain how much time has passed for Frodo. It doesn't seem like all that much time. Um, and similarly, you know, Gandalf says, "I'm setting off for Saruman," and then pop, he's there at he's there at Orthanc. That kind of thing happens all the time. Similarly, their choice to telescope periods of time, um, not to have significant stretches of time passing in which nothing compelling happens for the story. And in particular, the, with the Lord of the Rings films again, in particular, the 17 years that elapse between the, the, the long-expected party and Frodo's departure from the Shire, between Chapter 1 and Chapter 2, essentially, of the Fellowship of the Ring, don't seem to happen. There's some kind of uncertain amount of time um, that that passes, but it's certainly not 17 years. And that has a big impact on the story because Frodo is, of course, younger, a lot younger uh, in the films than he was in the stories, uh, in, in, in the book, that is. But, but again, uh, it's the pattern that I see uh, in the story, in the kind of storytelling uh, that Peter Jackson and company do, is that they don't want to have travels over distance or stretches of time happen, which are not part of the real sort of the real journeys of the story, the real journeys of the characters. So you know, when Frodo and the company go from Rivendell you know, all the way down towards Minas Tirith, it takes quite some time, and a lot happens there, and we spend a lot of time focusing on that, because that is not just a physical crossing of distance, but a real journey for those characters and a real movement of the story. You know, Gandalf's trip to Minas Tirith, what matters is that he went, right? Um, you know, there was no, like, character progress along the way kind of thing. It's, it did, you know, his, what he did on the way didn't matter for their story, and so they cut it, so they trimmed it in order to make it to make it move faster, to make it in that sense more coherent. And they clearly did this. Um, they're clearly operating on the same principles uh, in the Hobbit film. Uh, of course, one, one thing that many people have commented on is the miraculous way in which Radagast gets over the Misty Mountains with his bunny sled. And I agree. If you map it out, that seems a little bit unlikely, though I would argue not any more unlikely than uh, Gandalf's apparent teleportation to Minas Tirith or Orthanc uh, in the Lord of the Rings film. Um, uh, and I anticipate, based on what Galadriel said in film one, that we may be in for another one of those uh, in film two. She mentioned, and I'm referring to the Tomb of the Witch King, uh, she referred to the fact that the Tomb of the Witch King, was, the place where he was imprisoned, was in Hudar, um, which is part of the old kingdom of Arnor. And as far as I can see from the plot trajectory of the story so far, it seems that when Gandalf separates from Bilbo and the dwarves and goes off on his own, as he does in the book, um, one of the things presumably he's going to do is going to be, um, you know, uh, exploring and um, trying to uncover what's going on and checking out the tomb of the Witch King. But he's already over the Misty Mountains, and I guess he's going to travel back over the Misty Mountains uh, and go to Rudar. I don't know. I mean, it's again, it's one of those things where I'm sort of anticipating um, 
that there's going to be some uh, some more uh, sort of dodgy geography going on. But see, again, when people say, and as I, you know, I've heard people say, and and you are absolutely right to say that one of the things that makes Tolkien's world so compelling. Um, is the realism of his geography and the way that he has realized his landscape and all of those things. And you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, those are many of the things which gives, give Tolkien's books the texture and richness that they have. But you can't do the same thing on film. I don't think you can. Um, I mean, you know, it's not to say that the way that Peter Jackson does it is the only way in which it could possibly be done, but I do think that it's it it is an example of something that is very difficult to get um, from uh, from a film perspective. I mean, you know, the, I think that that their choice is very defensible to say, you know, when we're covering large distances, let's not dwell on that because just like people moving from point A to point B and in which nothing really significant happens, not real compelling on film. Similarly, having to continually come in and be like. 17 years later, you know, I, you know, and sort of just mark the passing of time when that passing of time doesn't accomplish anything in the story that we're trying to tell. It's just distracting. I can understand that, and that makes sense in the film context. Again, I, it works in the book, but I don't think it would work in the same way on film. Um, so time compression. Um, obviously, this is one of the big things that I know has bothered many Tolkien fans about the Hobbit film, and that's the whole Greenwood to Mirkwood thing happening in the course of apparently days or weeks instead of uh, days is perhaps a little bit of an exaggeration, but in a very short time contrasted uh, with the centuries in which it takes to happen uh, in Tolkien chronology. Yes, this is a huge compression. Um, and you know, and I think again, I think it can be defended on the point on, on you know on the standpoint of I mean, how how would we really want that done on film? I mean, do we seriously want you know like uh, references to the different meetings of the White Council and like the 150 years that happened in between each one of them? I, that would not be a compelling story uh, on film. Here is our first application of the principle that I was suggesting before. What do we do? St leave aside the story as you know it from the book for a moment. Open yourself up to the story that the film is telling. Try to understand that on its own grounds first. Look at what the film is doing. Then we can bring it back. Okay? Um, and so, so that's what I do here. So I look at, all right, what is the movie stuff doing with uh, you know, Radagast and the Greenwood there at the beginning? Well, clearly, the film is interested in describing the rise of an unknown evil. We're having Sauron taking shape again, um, which of course, he is taking shape again, um, but not yet declaring himself. We don't know who he is. And he also, the film also emphasizes very heavily, of course, the kind of impact that the dwelling of that kind of an evil creature has on the land around it. That, of course, itself is a very Tolkien idea. And you can see this again and again and again in Tolkien's books, right? Every dragon is surrounded by a wasteland uh, in Tolkien's books. Um, you know, that Mordor is not by accident surrounded by the Brownlands. And of course you will remember uh, the very vivid descriptions of, uh, of, the, uh, of the land outside the Black Gate when Frodo and Sam get there. I will never forget, I was, I was marked in my childhood by that sentence which described as if the, the mountains had vomited the filth of their entrails. Uh, that phrase just rolled through my mind as a child and I was like, <laughs> anyway, that's the effect that evil 
creatures have, and Tolkien is insistent on that. That, um, an, to put it crudely, that evil does not just affect the evildoer. That evil has impact on on everyone and everything around it, not just on the people around it, um, but even on the land, even on even on nature around it. And so, the ch and th their choice to dramatize that change, to dramatize that uh, corruption and the destruction with the dead animals and the, and the rotting trees, uh, and then the, uh, the invasion, apparently, from somewhere is not clear, um, of these monsters, of the spiders, you know, show that you know, there, 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 there are consequences. And of course, we get this culminating in the fight for the life and soul of Sebastian the Hedgehog, who clearly becomes a kind of a symbol of Radagast's struggle against this evil, right down to the point where he exercises that sort of black spirit out of, uh, out of Sebastian, which seems to repel the spiders. Many people have asked that, like, how exactly does Radagast doing that to the hedgehog, why did the spider stop attacking at that moment? Well, I mean, that seems to me pretty clearly symbolic. I don't think, that doesn't seem to have a really obvious kind of cause and effect um, thing. I, but again, I like it. I think it works. I think it's interesting because it does do something I think pretty compelling um, in showing Radagast standing against that evil and fighting, even for this, what seems so insignificant. That is, it's, I mean, it's just a hedgehog, right? I mean, he's cute and everything, and he's named Sebastian, and those are two really good things, but uh, he, he's still, he's just one little hedgehog. And, so, and Radagast seems to be going completely, like, losing perspective about this little hedgehog. But again, this is, um, uh, but, but it, with who Radagast is and with what he stands for and his defense of this one small good and innocent thing which is being, which is being hurt, which is being corrupted, um, which is being twisted by and, and killed uh, by the evil which is encroaching on the forest. Radagast isn't going to stand for that, and he stands up against it. And that is what I really like about this story. Um, I am willing to I'm willing, first of all, to, you know, I can kind of comprehend why they made the choice that they did about compressing time and space. I can grant them that and move on. Um, to me, that's not, I still sometimes chuckle because I can't help but remember how much actual distance is involved and all that stuff and, and the time uh, from the books. I can't totally put it out of my head, so sometimes uh, I can't help but be slightly amused when they leap around and when Radagast pops up all of a sudden on the other side of the Misty Mountains. But nevertheless, it works, and I'm willing, to, I'm willing to, 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 to let that go. But more importantly, I like the fact that they were doing that theme, both because that theme is itself so important in Tolkien, and also because, to me, it almost serves as a kind of atonement for what I will freely admit and have admitted before is my least favorite moment in the Lord of the Rings films. I cannot stand the moment in the Two Towers film where Treebeard discovers, as if by accident, that half his forest has been... I'd cut down, and he was hitherto ignorant of that point and had to, be had to be tricked into finding out by marrying Pippin. That drives me bananas because Treebeard would never do that. And it, it seems to me incoherent. It makes it impossible for me to have any kind of connection or even comprehension of this character called Treebeard that they're putting forward in the film. I can't understand. I don't understand it. Um, if, he does not, if he's not even sufficiently in tune with his forest to, to understand, you know, to recognize that it's under attack, 
who is he? What is he doing? Um, so I've always strongly disliked that passage in the two towers. Well, here they are not doing that. You know, if they just started the film, given the fact that they're going to do Radagast's character, if they just started the film with Mirkwood, with Mirkwood as it is, as you know, it is in the book, um, already corrupted, already dark, already twisted, as Mirkwood clearly is, even in the published Hobbit, not just evil but twisted was good, now evil, now corrupted. Um, if they just showed us that and showed us Radagast with the character that he is, you know, who he is, his relationship with the animals, his relationship with the forest, and him just living in this forest and being like, yeah, well, it's true, this forest has been steadily, like, slipping down into darkness and evil and corruption for a couple hundred years, but I haven't, like, done anything about it or anything. Um, I'm not particularly bothered. I still live here, you know, whatever. It's not, you know, the property values have decreased, but whatever. Um, that would be horrible. <laughs> that would not work. Um, I would object to that almost as strongly as I object to what they did with Treebeard. Um, but they don't do that. Instead, what they do is they show Radagast seeing the first signs, being sufficiently in touch with his environment to see the first signs of this corruption, immediately try to figure out what's causing it, causing it, and then immediately go and do something about it and try to tell the others about it. Um, I even like, by the way, Radagast, Radagast's general characterization, his oddity, um, the fact that his warning is so strange and the fact that people, you know, Saruman's disdain for him, I, I actually like that. It's not to say that I love everything about, about, you know, Radagast. A lot of people don't like the bird poop on his face, and I could do without the bird poop, too. It didn't add much for me. But, uh, but anyway, I, you know, I, in general, with almost, you know, almost all of it, I really liked Radagast. And what I find in that, again, I sort of back up from it and say, what is this doing? What is this unfolding? How, how it, what's, what's the meaning of this in the film? And what I see is the film doing a version of a theme which Tolkien was very fond of, which is one of the things he called one of the central themes of The Lord of the Rings, which is the significance of the small. Radagast is an outcast, not just because he lives on his own, but because he's weird. You know, we see the connection that he has with animals, and we see that you know, he, he's obviously, the, everything about the way he acts is not designed to appeal to people. I, I mean, it's clear, we're supposed to think that he's kind of a freak. We're supposed to think that he's very strange. Um, you know, and I like Gandalf's rather understated, well, he is odd, I grant you, right? Yes, he's odd. Hobbits are odd, too. Um, and yet, um, Saruman expressed disdain for them also. Right? And Gandalf didn't. Gandalf saw that they were significant and took them seriously when no one else would. I liked that. Um, and I, so again, thematically, thematically, I thought that worked. You might, uh, you, know, you might not like everything about the execution of that, but again, I find when I stand back from it and I look at what is the theme, what is the meaning, what's going, what are they doing with that, what I find is something not only interesting on its own, but something which is actually, uh, I think, very consistent with some things that Tolkien does in, the, in that same direction. So, in general, I like Radagast. Um, now, I haven't yet talked about a thing which I've been talking about about every time I talk to anybody <laughs> about the Hobbit film for the last several months. Um, and that is even more important than the question of how we evaluate the changes that the film makes is to, to, to look at this again and make sure we are understanding change from what 
exactly. When we say, oh, that's not how, that's, you know, that's not how it was, you know, or that, that change is different. I find actually a lot of people are under-informed about this, actually, and you probably, I'm sure you've probably heard me talk about this, and you've probably heard other people talk about this, too. There's, there's you know, there's no, uh, there's no sort of secret about this, but it's worth uh, repeating, at least in brief. Um, a lot of the objections that people have about the film, you know, ways in which it's different from the book, are ways in which it's different from the published book, but not ways in which it's different from Tolkien's writing. And what I mean, of course, are the changes that Tolkien made to The Hobbit post Lord of the Rings. I'm not going to go into all the details here, for one thing, because it's actually a really complicated situation. There's no single text. Tolkien didn't sit down and write, or at least he didn't complete, you know, a definitive post Lord of the Rings version of The Hobbit. So there is no single text uh, to work with. Um, instead, we just sort of see the direction that Tolkien's thinking was going, both in his later Hobbit revisions, as well as later on, um, his, things like the Quest of Erebor, probably the greatest, you know, the largest single text that we get of his post-Lord of the Rings rethinking of the Hobbit. Um, uh, but also, I mean, even, you know, some of his other, some of his other yeah, notes and things that we see. Um, Tolkien is incorporating the Hobbit into the world of the Lord of the Rings, and it's quite plain, and has been quite plain for more than a year, uh, that that's what Peter Jackson is doing too, that's what he is, that he is doing a parallel thing. Um, that is, Tolkien wrote The Hobbit in the 30s as a freestanding children's story, not part of the history of Middle-earth. That concept didn't really exist, that is, of this larger epic story of the history of Middle-earth didn't exist in his mind. Silmarillion material was already there, but that was this mythology he was working on. He connected The Hobbit to the mythology, or rather he incorporated elements from that myth th those mythological stories into The Hobbit at various points, Elrond, Gondolin, that kind of thing. But I am not convinced that when he wrote The Hobbit, he at all saw it as being really a part of that larger story, as being one chapter in any larger story. It was just a freestanding kind of fairy tale. Then he went to write a sequel, and you know what happened. He goes on and ends up developing that sequel into The Lord of the Rings, and 17 years of real-world time later, he plumps the thousand pages down onto the desk of George Allen and says, okay, um, or of Stanley Unwin, I guess, actually, and says, uh, you know, here is the sequel to The Hobbit. Um, but, of course, having done that, once one of the main things that happens when he writes The Lord of the Rings is not just the writing of that story, but through the writing of that story, the concept of the whole historical arc of Middle-earth from the Ainulindale and the Elder Days as articulated in the Silmarillion material through the end of the Third Age becomes one large contiguous story. Um, that idea of the whole thing all fitting together um, comes in. You, know, you may remember, if you've read Tolkien's short story, Leaf by Niggle, that Niggle, uh, the painter, loved to paint trees, and especially leaves. He was particularly good at leaves. And he makes lots of leaf paintings, um, lots of separate paintings. And then he begins his one great painting, his great tree. And he, you know, he, so he has this huge tree. And then if you remember the story, remember what Niggle does, is he keeps taking his old paintings and pasting them in, attaching them, like, you know, stapling them on uh, to his big picture until finally this one big tree picture actually incorporates all of the other little paintings that he always made. That was 
very like the process that Tolkien was going through when he wrote The Lord of the Rings, that all of his, almost all of his other writings, not absolutely all of them, there are some things that still remain outside, like Leaf by Niggle and Farmer Giles of Ham and things like that. Um, but he, certainly with the Hobbit stuff, the Silmarillion stuff, he incorporates all of those things. Um, even notice, of course, Tom Bombadil is another example of one of those other paintings that gets pasted onto the edge, uh, you know, stitched into the edge of that painting, that, that other larger painting. Anyways, okay, so Tolkien, um, that's, that's one of the, I say, one, one of the really big things that was happening when he was working on The Lord of the Rings, and that fact has a profound impact on the Hobbit story, and it changes a lot of things. Even when Tolkien did not, as in many cases, he did not actually write out a narrative to describe it. He never rewrote stuff exactly, but he was integrating stuff. He was naturalizing the Hobbit into the world of the Lord of the Rings, and in doing so, made a lot of changes, and many of those changes that Tolkien made are incorporated in the film. In fact, I will say, there are moments in this film that where actually Peter Jackson and company have done a better job than Tolkien ever did of making those things fit together. Many of the, when Tolkien goes back, goes back to rewrite things, some of the things that he rewrites, some of the things that he says are in flat contradiction to what it says in the published Hobbit. This is not there. Um, and Tolkien, it's not that they can't possibly be harmonized, but he never got around to doing it. He never did harmonize it. Whereas I think in many of those moments, you can see Peter Jackson and company doing that work of harmonizing and really thinking about trying to take both things, both what we see in the published book and some of these things that Tolkien said and wrote later on about the Hobbit or the Hobbit story or the Hobbit characters, and really trying to fit them in ways which I think reflect a lot of careful thought and a lot of really interesting thought, which I really admire. Um, so, so again, this is just sort of one thing. And I, 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 this is a really complicated subject because there are so many different sort of writings and sayings of Tolkien that need to be kind of brought in in order to to to, to understand where Tolkien was going with it. What, you know, what we can what we can understand about where Tolkien was going with this story later on in his life, um, and you know, for that we need to you know we need to get that stuff together and compare it to what's going on in the films in order to get a full appreciation for that. And that's a really complicated undertaking, which I don't have time to do today. I will mention though. Um, I have, this is something I've gotten really interested in, and I'm actually in the process, well, I'm working on actually writing about this. I think I may, um, I may do another book on this subject, actually, in a sense, a kind of a sequel uh, to my Exploring the Hobbit book, because those of you who've read my book will know that um, in Exploring the Hobbit, I tried to stick to just the pre-Lord of the Rings Hobbit. Let's take the Hobbit on its own ground, that freestanding story that we get in 1937, and which gets revised <clears throat> down the road. What is Tolkien saying in that book? And I tried to, again, you know, it, to urge us to perform the exercise of not thinking from a Lord of the Ring, you know, seeing The Hobbit purely through a Lord of the Rings lens um, as we go through the book. Well, but looking at The Hobbit through the Lord of the Rings, through the Lord of the Rings lens is actually quite an interesting thing to do. And I'm actually thinking, so that's what I'm actually thinking about doing as a kind of a follow-up to my first book. Um, and to be looking at, to be doing, uh, you know, probably using the films as a way to get into that and be doing some comparison and contrast of that, of how 
Peter Jackson has approached this, this same problem, coming back to The Hobbit after doing The Lord of the Rings and bringing The Hobbit into that world, which is exactly where Tolkien was in 1955, going back and bringing The Hobbit into The Lord of the Rings world, having written The Lord of the Rings now. Um, so anyway, I, that's something that I'm thinking a lot about and will continue to be thinking a lot about. I don't have time to do it all justice right now, but I do want to make sure to bring it up because um, a lot of times the things that people object to it's, it's just because they haven't read this other stuff that Tolkien wrote. That they, you know, they haven't read the appendices. They haven't read *Quest of Erebor*. Um, they haven't read the, you know, they haven't read the history of the Hobbit. Um, uh, you know, John Ratliff's wonderful two-volume book, *The History of the Hobbit*, where he gives the, the manuscript development of the Hobbit. It's so interesting to go through that and see the directions that Tolkien is taking the Hobbit as he writes it and rewrites it and revises it and comes back to it years later. Um, very fascinating to see what's going on there. Um, and I suppose I should, at that point, uh, give a small plug. Um, many of you who are here today took my Mythgard Institute class last fall on the, on the story called The Story of the Hobbit, where we look at the analog stories and then that manuscript development we read through the entirety of uh, John Ratliff's book, um, looking at Doug Anderson's annotated Hobbit. And, uh, uh, and then looking at some of the later adaptations and, and developments and publication history. Um, and when you do that, it, the, watching the movie becomes a very different experience, I find, when you actually look at that whole story, the whole development of The Hobbit in Tolkien's mind. Um, so I'm teaching that class again this spring. If any of you are interested, uh, you should check it out, mythgard.org, M-Y-T-H-G-A-R-D.org. Um, I think that you will really enjoy going through The Hobbit in that kind of detail, and it will really help you to understand better a lot of what's going on there and a lot of what Peter Jackson is dealing with. But, um, okay, so there's my, that's my, my long sort of theoretical preamble in thinking about what we need to, sort of the larger issues that we need to think about as we approach this story. Um, I want to shift to um, actually talking about... Um, I want to shift to actually talking about uh, some of the major themes of the of the story, um, but though I feel like I should, um, uh, well, I mean, if, if, the, if you have questions about any of the sort of theoretical things that I've been talking about, you know, please do feel free to feel free to uh, uh, to submit that. Um, uh, you know, enter that into the question box here, and I'll try to. Uh, um, I'll try to, to, to respond to that if I can, um, but I do also want to move on to the, the more thematic discussions. Um, let, me, um, let me take uh, some of these larger themes in order, um, and you can already start suggesting some others if you like. Here are, the, here are the themes that I want to talk about from the film. I want to talk about the Took and Baggins stuff uh, in Bilbo's character arc. I want to talk about the theme of the theme of home and belonging, which was such an important aspect in this film. In fact, I would point to that as the number one film, or number one theme of the film. Um, the vengeance theme, which I thought was very prominent, and it is in that context I want to talk about Azog, which I know bothered many, very many of you. Uh, and I want to talk more about this theme of the spread of evil. We talked about Greenwood a little bit, but I want to talk about some more things there. Um, and then I want to touch on the theme of destiny. So, okay. Um, 
token bagins first. Of course, uh, many of you know uh, that that's something that I was going to be very interested in. I spend a lot of time talking about that in my Hobbit lecture series and in my book. Um, and of course, I was very keen to see how they were going to treat the whole token bagins nature thing in Bilbo's character. Um, and this, by the way, I would point to as, another, as a really interesting illustration of one of the principles I was talking about before. If you approach the film with a tendency to a kind of a knee-jerk response to sort of just first noticing, hey, wait, that's different, hey, that's different. Um, it can really get in your way. Um, and I actually think my very first viewing of the film, I slipped into that with the, because I was so keen to see what they were going to do with it. I slipped into that. Um, and when Bilbo and the Unexpected Party was acting completely Baggins-ish, um, you know, when he responded to being called more like a grocer than a burglar, people saying that he's not any good, you know, and Martin Freeman does, he's like, you know, see, yes, like, I, I totally agree with everything you're saying, I'm absolutely not fit for an adventure, thank you very much. Um, I was disappointed, because that seemed to me to be missing, you know, so much of the complexity of Bilbo's character. One of the things that's so interesting about all of Bilbo's responses, you know, for me, the whole adventure begins, of course, with Bilbo's reaction to the dwarf's song, but the whole adventure really begins in that peculiar moment when, for some reason, because of his tookishness inside, he responds in outrage when he is said to look more like a grocer than a burglar. And as I said in my book, you'd think if, if these strange and adventurous dwarves had come into his house and said, ah, you look like an excellent burglar. He would have been offended, right? I mean, wh why on earth should he be offended at being told he doesn't look like a burglar? Why should he want to look like a burglar? Why should he care about earning the dwarves' respect as an adventurer and a thief? And, um, but he does. He does care. And he cares not only then, but at many other points later on in the story, trying to prove himself to the dwarves. In Chapter 2 with the trolls, of course. Again in Chapter 6, um, yeah, at the very beginning of chapter 6, when he sneaks in among the, the dwarves with his ring and doesn't tell them how he did it. Um, there are lots of times. His reluctance to reveal the fact that he has an invisibility ring because he doesn't want his street cred to drop with the dwarves, right? That he's not going to be so good a burglar. All of these things are kind of unusual and kind of unexpected. And again, they reflect, they show that inner tookishness that Bilbo himself was not really in touch with and doesn't fully understand. Um, and that didn't happen in the unexpected party scene in the film. But watching the movie a couple more times and disciplining myself to kind of back off from that and say, hey, wait, Bilbo's supposed to be responding this way. This is what he's supposed to say here. This is when I kind of calmed down uh, and watched it again, I noticed that actually the film is doing some really interesting things with the token Baggins stuff. Because you see, Bilbo does seem entirely Baggins-ish. He doesn't appear to have a tookish bone in his body throughout the whole unexpected party scene up until that conversation that he has with Gandalf. When Gandalf, when, you know, when he says in that, um, that clip which was excerpted in a couple of the trailers, when, you know, when he's, you know, I, I'm a Baggins, a bag end, right? Um, and he is asserting, you know, his identity, 100% Baggins, he says. Um, and I was a little... I wasn't quite sure about that when it was excerpted in the trailers. I was, you know, I was like, again, I was like, well, that doesn't seem quite right, you know. He said because he's he's also a took also. Well, in 
The film, of course, when I saw that clip in context, I felt much better about it because Gandalf, of course, immediately responds by saying, and you're also a took. And so we have the very explicit introduction of that dichotomy. And what I found fascinating was Bilbo's reaction. Um, you may remember, um, Bilbo, you know, Martin Freeman is sitting in his armchair there. It's right after he's fainted, of course, um, when Gandalf says that. He says, you're also a took. And if you remember, Martin Freeman rocks his head back onto the onto the chair, kind of half closes his eyes, you know, almost as if, like, I was hoping you weren't going to remind me of that, right? Um, and again, I found that really interesting. Bilbo recognizes that there's another side to his character. In fact, the Bilbo that the film gives us is one who is actually trying to suppress, it seems, this, at least this is how I took it, um, is actually trying to suppress his Tookish impulses, that he has chosen not to go there. Um, and Gandalf says all these things, like for instance, says that he was a, you know, that he was very promising, that he used to, he says, you know, when did, you know, doilies and your mother's china become so important to you? Gandalf indicates, A, that he knew Bilbo when he was a kid, and B, that Bilbo used to be much more openly Tookish, um, that he used to care about that stuff. He didn't used to be so Baggins-ish. He didn't used to be so thoroughly, um, you know, sort of stodgy as he is depicted uh, in that opening scene. And Bilbo knows it and seems to have consciously turned against it. When Gandalf is appealing to him, and of course revealing later on when they're on Ponyback, when, and Gandalf is receiving his winnings from his bets with the dwarves, revealing Gandalf was confident that Bilbo would come, was still betting on him, that that tookish was still in him and that he would still choose it, still choose to, to, to step off in that direction. Um, Gandalf is, is, is still talking to Bilbo in this way, and yet Bilbo is resistant. He still says, you've got the wrong hobbit. I can't do this, right? By which he means, I won't do this. He is choosing to turn away from the Turkish side. But then he, the next morning, chooses to go, and chooses it more consciously than the Bilbo in the book does. You know, runs out the door saying, I'm going on an adventure, not this, to the end of his days, he could never remember how he ended up, you know, running down the lane, which is what we get in the book. He has made a conscious decision. Um, and of course, the transition point, there are two scenes which serve as transition points between Bilbo's decision not to go and his decision to go, one of which is in a uh, a move which I found so appropriate, I found it absolutely heartwarming, the dwarves' song, which incidentally I thought was one of the most wonderful things about the entire film. I loved the singing of the dwarves' song. Um, I found it deeply moving, and it seems that Bilbo did too. And this is also one of the only places where I will say that I thought the film was more understated than the book. That is usually not the case, and I find the book much more understated than the film, uh, and the film kind of goes over the top in several places. But, uh, but nevertheless, I thought, actually thought the film was more understated than the book in this, that scene with Bilbo's reaction to the dwarf's song. Um, we do get him in his bedroom sitting listening to the dwarf singing and it does seem to be having some impact on him. And that, uh, that you know, sort of the, the transition the on screen from 
Bilbo sitting and listening to that shot of the sparks coming up out of the um, out of the the chimney up into the stars, which so beautifully recalled that lovely image from the dwarves' song about the uh, you know the the there I was thinking of the dwarves' wind song uh, in chapter seven, where the you know the 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 moon set sail upon the gale and stars were fanned to leaping light. Uh, that picture of stars as the embers of a fire being fanned <clears throat> into life, and that was <clears throat> I guess sort of visually, symbolically, how I saw that moment um, on screen with uh, with Bilbo's own thinking. And then of course we get the next morning where he wakes up and he goes downstairs, and he has gotten his will. Right? He chose not to be involved. He chose to remain only a Baggins of Bag End and to deny this Turkish impulse towards adventuring. And instead, what he gets is, well, he gets what he wants. Right? But when he, <clears throat> when he wakes up, he finds that Bag End is empty. And it feels empty. Uh, and he is dissatisfied. And you know, it's one of those scenes that I know that there were you know, it might have been thousands of people who thought that that scene of Bilbo slowly walking around Bag End on the morning after he wakes up, many people might have thought that was really slow moving and could have been trimmed down a little bit. I didn't. I loved it. Um, I thought it was, again, it was very well done. It was very understated. But I could see what was going on. I think that was an important moment where he is turning away from his old life, choosing to turn away from his own life, that they really foregrounded that decision of his. And I like that. So anyway, so I thought in the end, I thought they did do some very interesting things with the token bag and stuff. Are they doing the same things? No, they're not doing the same things. It's not exactly the same. Um, I will be very interested to see where it ends up and how these ideas are, are incorporated, especially in film three and his return uh, and in Thorin's deathbed scene. Um, so, I mean, all those things, I'll, I'm still waiting to see kind of where this goes, but with what they did at the beginning, I, I was really interested in that. Um, on a similar note, people were, uh, were talking about Bilbo's uh, sort of heroism arc and how his heroism was altered. A lot of people bothered by the fact, um, again, as I was the first time I saw it, when Bilbo pounces in and stabs that orc to save Thorin, I was, I was, you know, my first reaction was, what? Wait, no, he's supposed to wait for the spiders. Wait for the spiders, Bilbo. Um, that was my first reaction, too. I'll freely admit it. Um, but, again, stepping back from it and looking at what's going on in the story, first of all, the mere fact of the action sequence is, I think, not inappropriate in any way. Bilbo is, does in the book attain at least that level of physical heroism. In fact, much more uh, in his fight with the spiders. The shift is merely a shift in time. That is, that moment of sort of the climax of Bilbo's heroism, his sort of physical heroism, um, is moved forward from chapter 8 to chapter 6. Um, but I, so I didn't find that a radical kind of violation of what um, of what the story was doing, and it you know it worked. Is it going to change the spider sequence? Yeah, but actually I'm I'm more okay with that now. Um, those of you who listen to Riddles in the Dark may remember that when uh, when the rumor first circulated. I think this came out of the, those 10 minutes of footage shown in CinemaCon. When the rumor circulated that uh, it looked like Legolas and some other elves were going to show up to rescue the dwarves from the spiders, 
you know, when that when that was first brought up in <laughs> Riddles in the Dark, I was like, okay, I don't want to think about that. Let's just move on. I'm not going to talk about that because I hope it's not true. Um, but the reason I was sort of concerned about that is again thematically I'm like they're not going to take Bilbo's moment away are they they're not going to take the you know this moment where Bilbo takes that step to actually uh, you know physically become a hero in order to save his friends no they moved it um, and you know I, I don't know how the spider thing is going to go it may well be that he will you know he will remain heroic and but you know it's like is it different? Yes, but I actually can. I think we can see a similar kind of thing in him stepping out when nobody else is stepping out, and him coming to the aid of his friends against terrible odds. The shape of it is in many ways kind of similar, actually a little bit more understated uh, than it was in the book. But um, but anyway, so I think that um, I was fine with that, and more importantly, I thought it made the film itself coherent. I thought it worked very well as a thematic climax to this first film. Um, and it gave, the, it's, it's one of the things, one of the real challenges um, of the storytelling task that Peter Jackson and company have set for themselves um, when in, in doing this, not only in doing this film, but in doing this film in three different parts in any number of parts, really, it's not, it's, this is not about the trilogy versus the two part, is that in order for the films to be good, I mean, they have to have a shape of their own. Each film itself has to be some kind of a satisfying story um, in order just to keep from being annoying and frustrating. And I thought they did a wonderful job with that on this film. I thought in that way, I thought that this film worked better. Um, the Fellowship of the Ring film, maybe, is the only one I can think of that works similarly well um, as a kind of an internal arc. But anyway, um, so I, I I didn't I didn't have uh, I didn't have a huge problem with that. I really I, I I thought it worked I thought it worked well. And what I thought worked best of all was the way in which um, the way in which Bilbo's story and his token Nagin stuff was integrated into that theme of home and belonging that the film was developing so strongly. Um, <clears throat> I thought, you know, that that was a way that they turned it, which I think is not alien to the book at all, either the published book or the later stuff. I mean, the whole, the connection between the hill and the mountain is, I think, brought up at several points um, in the book, and that we're invited to think about that at several points both in terms of contrast, but also in terms of connection, that there are some kinds of parallels between Bilbo's story and Thorin's story. Um, and, um, and I thought that the way that they did it, um, it was very logical. Um, at the beginning of the published Hobbit, the dwarves are on a treasure hunt. Their story is almost entirely about their treasure. They don't really talk about the reestablishment of a kingdom. Um, by the time we get, not to the end, by the time we get to chapter 10, things have changed a lot. And a, a fair amount of time passed between when Tolkien wrote chapter 1 and when Tolkien wrote chapter 10, um, chapter 9 and 10. Um, a significant amount of time elapsed. And when he comes back to the story after a break, suddenly we find that the story he's writing is a different kind of story. And now, all of a sudden, it's not only do we have talk about the reestablishment of the kingdom, we have prophecies 
about the reestablishment of the kingdom. Um, and that whole dimension just explodes in Lake Town. Um, and Thorin, who was very important, which usually meant snooty, um, now all of a sudden is Thorin, son of Thran, son of Thror, king under the mountain, I return. He never talked like that before. Um, in the film, he's that from the beginning. Right, they stay, they have, they play out with much more thoroughness. I think their um, uh, their um, their move towards um, telling the story of the Lonely Mountain Dwarves and and really telling Thorin's story. I found the glimpse of that, you know, that dwarven diaspora, the dwarves wandering off when they've you know lost their homes, really moving. Um, and the moment of Thorin at the forge, um, you know, trying to both, you know, beat out a new life for his people, but also stoke the rage of, you know, those that have done him wrong and have been in the home that they have lost, the identity that they have lost. It's a big deal. Um, and it's a big deal in the story as Tolkien tells it later. The Quest of Erebor Thorin, the Appendix A Thorin, is a Thorin who is much more like the movie Thorin in this way. Um, he's not on a treasure hunt, or he's not just on a treasure hunt. Um, so, um, so that, I, you know, I thought that was well, and the, the way that they make Bilbo himself kind of come to understand that, and the way they bring it to, because um, Bilbo does not leave behind his Baggins side. As in the book, he remains Baggins-ish, and he still embraces it. As he says, you know, as he admits, you know, I don't fit in here. You know, I miss my books. You know, that scene after he reunites with them, which I thought was a very powerful scene in the film. Um, he recognizes, he still embraces his back inside. He knows that fundamentally that's who he is. That's his identity. He is still a Baggins of Bag End, as he called himself. Thorin is the king of Erebor. Thorin is the king under the mountain. He doesn't have his home. That scene with... That scene with, with Boffer, who, by the way, was one of my very favorite characters in the whole film, um, came out of nowhere to me. Uh, but anyway, that scene with Boffer at the, when, when Bilbo's going to leave and go back to Rivendell from the, from the Goblin Cave, um, you know, where he says, you know, you guys are used to this, you don't have anywhere that you belong, and then he realizes the significance of what he just said, right? I, I found that that theme worked really well and played fascinatingly with the token bag and stuff, I thought. So I think you know, there's, there's more I could say, and doubtless there's more that I will say about this stuff. Um, but, um, but anyway, I think that they, um, I think that they did a really fascinating job in, uh, in, in bringing some of those things together. Um, let's see. Uh, okay, just sort of scanning through some of the comments. I'm going to move on to the vengeance theme here in a second. But I want to, um, let's see, um, let's see, Marion, I'm just sort of scanning through some of the comments you guys have made to try to hit on some of these. Uh, Marion, Paul, you were asking, uh, what are my thoughts on the characterization of the dwarves? Um, I've just been talking about that a little bit. And, oh, and if, but if by that you mean the characterization of the individual dwarves, um, like the personalities and backstories and um, rather idiosyncratic physical appearances uh, given to the different dwarves. I liked it. I mean, it's, that to me is one of the most classic illustrations. I mean, if you, if, if you ask me for one illustration of what I mean when I say you can't just take a book and project it onto a screen, 
The 13 dwarves in the party are to me the simplest possible example. Tolkien deliberately leaves most of them, I keep wanting to say anonymous, they have names, so they're not anonymous, but, uh, but they're ciphers, they're zeros. We know nothing in the books. Uh, in, in the Hobbit book, we are told nothing about Ori, or Nori, or Bifer, or Boffer, or Owen, none of those people. They almost never say anything. We know nothing about them. They are, it's like they're invisible. They're, they're um, you know, they're included for number like, like goods in a package. And that was deliberate on Tolkien's part. And I think as far as the book is concerned, it was a good choice. Um, again, there's one thing that we, that we were noticing in uh, the story of the Hobbit class this past semester. As Tolkien revised the Hobbit pre-publication, he made changes with that. He actually, in the original draft, gave more lines to more different dwarves. He tried to develop the personality more of the different dwarves. And then as time went on, he cut it down. He kept giving people's lines to, to fewer and fewer people until finally the only ones that we ever really get to know are Thorin and Balin and Bomber uh, and to a lesser extent Dory and Fuey and Kiwi. And Glowen has his one moment uh, in, uh, in, in The Unexpected Party, his you know, more, more, more like a grocer than a burglar line. Um, but uh, but anyway, you know, that we, and that's, that was a good choice, I think, for Tolkien. It allowed us to connect with some characters and to kind of accept that or kind of project that onto the other characters. We can kind of, in, we're invested in them as a group, but we don't get to know each one of them personally because that would have been really, really difficult and probably tedious. But on screen, he can't do that. He can't have 13 dwarves all looking identical and, and some people who never speak and whom we never like can, can even tell apart from other people. That would be really boring and bad to watch. Um, but, but, but I liked it. I thought it worked really well, uh, Mary, and I, 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 I quite enjoyed it. And as I said, there were some characters, I thought, who just really, in, in particular, um, Bofer, who I thought just, uh, um, for me, really came out of nowhere. Um, but uh, let's see. Um, yeah, uh, Daniel says, "What do I think of the friendship being between Balfour and Bilbo, and not Bilbo and Balin, as it is in the book?" Um, Daniel, I wasn't surprised by that. Well, first of all, let me say I liked Balin in the film, um, and uh, somebody—I think it was in—I'm trying to remember which interview this was happening during. It was—I think it was when I was doing the Twitter chat with uh, Houghton Mifflin. Um, somebody asked me what character in the film are you really looking forward to or, or do you really have like a lot invested in? And I said Balin, because I love Balin in the, in the book. And I was really hoping that he wouldn't, be, but I love what they did with Balin. Um, the sort of the kindliness and wisdom of Balin, um, I thought was fantastic and very well done and very much like uh, the kind of voice that he is in the book. Um, so I really liked that. Um, but Daniel, I would say, that the, the connection between Balin and Bilbo never really operated on that exact level. That is, they weren't really friends exactly um, because there's such a discrepancy between them. Um, that is, in age, Balin is, is really old uh, and Bilbo is not. And I think especially when you're seeing that, when you see this guy with a long white beard and Bilbo, um, you know, they can still have a relationship, but Boffer and Bilbo were sort of more peers, more visually peers, um, and so it was, it, 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 I thought it worked better to give them that kind of relationship, but I liked it. I liked Balin, and I liked, uh, and I certainly liked Boffer and what they did with him, so I thought that that was very well done. Um, 
Let's see, Danny also wants to talk about dragon sickness. I'm going to come to that in a second. Um, let's see, okay. Some of these I'll come back to later on. Um, at the end, I want to hit some. I want to make sure, and just because I want to make sure that I hit on uh, some of the major themes I want to talk about before I do some sort of smaller points. Um, but uh, yes, good trip. Uh, your point is exactly where I want to go next. Vengeance and Azog. Okay, I would describe vengeance as another one of the major themes of the story. Um, and again, I come back to that scene which I found that. That well, I guess it is a scene um, at the, uh, in the in the sort of prologue section, which I found so compelling. Thorin at the Thor, Thorin at the forge, uh, and with the you know Bilbo's you know with the Ian Holm voiceover saying that he you know that he would never forgive and he would never forget, and it was powerful because I think that we can see it operating in two different ways. On the one hand. It is very understandable, though. I know I, as a viewer, was very much able to enter into Thorin's feelings there, and what has happened to him, and and how, um, you know, the the terrible wrong, the tragedy that has befallen him and his people, and not just abstract tragedy, but the the the, the horrible wrong which has been perpetrated by an evil creature, uh, onto him and his people. I can. I can totally get within that, and yet there's something ominous about that. Never forgive and never forget. It's like yeah, I'm not sure that's actually. I get it, Thor, and I'm, I feel you, but I'm not sure that that's entirely a good thing. Um, and then we get Azog and Balin's flashback to the Battle of Azanulbazar, and there we see again a vengeance thing. This time now, not only has Thorin had his homeland taken away. But now his grandfather, the king, has been killed by Azog and then mocked. Um, you know, with this, it's not quite the same as the brand uh, on on Thor's head uh, in the story. You know, in in the in in Appendix A. But anyway, we still get the holding up of the head and the, the disdainful throwing it across the battlefield at Thorin's feet. Um, you know, that's uh, that's that that that's a big deal. Um, so his wreaking vengeance on Azog, but then of course Azog not being killed and coming back, and I know this was one of the, Azog in general has bothered so many people, and I understand, you know, again, you know, many people are bothered by Azog for more kind of technical reasons, they thought that he looked weird or, you know, wasn't, didn't look convincing, uh, you know, that's as maybe, again, I'm, 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 I'm easy, uh, I was fine, I didn't, wasn't particularly bothered by any of those things. Um, because again, what I was thinking about when I was watching that was, was was again these ideas, and I see Trip exactly as you were as you were just pointing out. Uh, Trip was asking, um, you know, what do I think of the parallel between Thorin and Azog's need for revenge against each other? Well, Trip, I thought it was very interesting because that's exactly what I was thinking about when I was watching it. That you know, Azog becomes a kind of foil for Thorin himself. Azog is out for revenge, for revenge against the one who injured him, um, and he has a point. Well, you know, Thorin did fairly dismember him, and uh, and you know that does make people cranky. So, I mean, he he, Azog obviously has sworn never to forgive and never to forget. Even the parallels, you know, with the the fear and the deference that the other orcs show to Azog, even the way that they talk about him, you know, the pale orc. They don't even mention him by name, which to me conveys, you know, greater kind of respect and fear. I don't even want to name him. Um, 
you know, even like the you know the orcs are all calling him like the orc who must not be named. <clears throat> but anyway, I mean, it's clearly a, it's clearly a sign of respect. But you remember, the other dwarves in Thorin have that kind of relationship too. Thorin is also like Azog among the goblins. Um, uh, Thorin is also a bit of a a bit of a moaner in a sense. A bit of a uh, he's he's also a bit isolated. Um, you think of the reaction, you know, when uh, Feely and Keely are, are are having Bilbo on about the goblins that are going to cut in, and then Thorin cuts across them, and then walks away with his back to the group when Balin begins to tell the story. And we can see that distance even more powerfully. And this is one of the things that I loved most about the um, the chip the glasses and crack the plates sequence in the film was how it ends. It ends with, a, with the, the knock on the door from Thorin, and all of the frivolity is over at that point. That Thorin arrives late, and that the entire tone of the gathering shifts. There's no more joking around. There's no more fun. Um, it's serious business. Now, now the dwarves could say, dark for dark business, when Thorin arrives. Their business wasn't very dark before. Now it's dark when Thorin arrives. Um, he just has this different cloud around him uh, than... Uh, than the rest of the, the 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 dwarves and the whole party does, and again, that's it's not exactly the same as Azog, but 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 again, like I think in that way, they're parallel certainly in any case, and I think that it sets up, I, I you know for that for me one of the reasons you know that I was able to forgive the you know the significant alteration of having Azog survive and return as a recurring villain, well I was fine with that for two reasons. One, because, well, that is a, an idea that's there in the books anyway. Not Azog escaping and returning, but that idea of vengeance. Even in the published Hobbit, when we get Bolg leading the armies of goblins to the Battle of Five Armies, um, you know, we're to, you know, Gandalf makes a big deal about that. You know, Bolg, you know, Dan Bolg, the son of Azog, whom you, you know, the, of Azog whom you slew at, at Moria. Um, that is, we have in the book the son of Azog who has now come back to take vengeance. Well, here we get Azog himself returning to take vengeance, um, and it's it's different, but it's this, but it, but there is still a similar kind of idea, and the film is foregrounding it even more. And again, with that parallel between Thorin and Azog, I thought worked very interestingly. Um, many people keep saying, but why not just make it Bolg? Why have Azog survive? Why? Not? I mean, he's got Bolg. What, what's he going to do with Bolg? I'm going to wait on this one. Bolg is going to be there. We know Bolg is going to be there. There are they, they, they were already selling action figures in Barnes & Noble for crying out of Bolg. I saw them uh, you know, when I was going around doing book signings and stuff. I was looking at Bolg action figures. They exist. So I know Bolg is going to be there. Um, and I don't know yet what they're going to do with him. He was there, if you noticed. He was at the Battle of Azanobazar, and Dwalin seems to completely take him out. Um, so I don't know. Um, yeah, uh, Yana was just saying that couldn't Bolg have worked just as well. Um, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. They're going to do something with Bolg. And so there, I'm just willing to kind of wait and be patient on that one um, and not say, well, they clearly should have just made it Bolg because they're going to do something else with Bolg. Um, and I have my kind of suspicions. I'll talk about those in Riddles in the Dark. But, um, but, uh, but anyway... I'm going to be interested to watch where this vengeance theme goes. But as far as film one is concerned, I thought the vengeance thing was very well done. And what it does for me is to point to the moral ambiguity of Thorin's position. Thorin is in the right. 
Thorin is, 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 is it's understandable and it's totally justified for Thorin to feel the way that he does about Smaug and about the exile from his kingdom and everything else. And of course, to avenge his grandfather in the way that he does and his father disappears and that I suppose will come back too. Um, totally understandable, totally justifiable, but morally ambivalent, but morally questionable. And Thorin is potentially damaged. That Thorin is, you know, that there's, there is something that is questionable about this. And Azog really draws attention to that. If Azog is evil for doing what he does, what does that say about Thorin? And here I wanted to uh, give a shout out to Chandar, who made a comment about this on my Facebook page, which I really wanted to, uh, to come back to, because Chandar, I thought you, you said this really, really well. Um, and did some really good analysis here. Um, and he's referring specifically to the moment when Thorin comes and challenges Azog um, at the end of the first film in the uh, Out of the Frying Pan scene. Uh, Chandra says, I believe that the music at this point and Gandalf's look at Thorin standing up and going towards the pale orc is very telling. Thorin should at that moment be thinking about saving his companions, but instead his pride overtakes him and he faces away from his friends in order to attack a threat that is less imminent than the certain death of the others. Gandalf looks at him like Sam looks at Frodo when he takes the ring, disappointed. And the music gives us the second clue. It's the same evil music theme as is played in The Lord of the Rings when stuff goes bad. So instead of this moment being a heroic moment for Thorin, it actually foreshadows his downfall at the hands of his own pride. And Bilbo saving him is part of the same theme that will be clear by the end of the story. Um, I thought that was a wonderful piece of analysis by Chandar. Um, I agree with him, and I would I just kind of point to that not only as, a, as an interesting piece of analysis on its own, but it's exactly the kind of thing that I think that you can do, that I, that, that I think that is to me so much more interesting than, um, than sort of you know, cataloging differences between you know, when, you, when you do back up and you look at the story, the, the film story on its own ground and see what it's doing, you can see these things. And when we see those things, I agree with Chandar, I think that we can see that setting up um, and interacting in really interesting ways with what uh, Bilbo and Thorne's relationship is going to come to in film three. Um, when Thorin threatens to throw him off in the, the gate, you know, with the whole Arkenstone thing. Um, I think that's going to be a very big deal. Um, and um, yeah, anyway, so I, I really, um, I, I'm really interested in that. I, I'm very interested to see where it goes. But see, again, this is for me my overall point about the film and the core of my own very positive reaction to the film. When I do that kind of analysis, like Chandar was just doing, um, and I look at... Um, the way that these ideas are being unfolded and these themes. When I look at those, I find those themes fit with Tolkien's story generally in ways that I find much more compelling than I did in the Lord of the Rings films. This is why I like the Hobbit film. Not only do I like it, I like it much more than I like the Lord of the Rings films. Are, is it as good a movie? Probably not, but I don't, honestly, I don't care. What I care about is the story that it's telling, and it's telling a good story and an interesting story and a story which really does pick up um, on, and, and even um, invite me to look again um, at, uh, at a lot of things in Tolkien's story, so I really like that. Um, let me just kind of glance again at some of the comments that you guys are making, and, uh, and then I'll move on uh, to my... So again, some of these I'm going to save to come back to at the end, Then I've got one and a half more themes that I want to talk about. Um, Let's see. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Let me. Um, oh. Uh, yeah, okay, I'll come back to that. Okay, good, good. Now, a bunch of things, but I'll, I'll come back to them after I do this, uh, these last ones. One of the other themes that I was pointing to was the spread of evil theme, and I've already talked about Greenwood and how they're doing that and how I like what they're doing there, even if, again, you know, maybe you don't like how it was done, but I really do like that theme, and I like the fact that they're foregrounding it in the way that they do. And I think that the corruption of Greenwood is only one of several examples that we get of this, and the way that those different examples not only develop on their own, but the way that they work together, I think is really intricate and really cool. That is, okay, you get the corruption of the necromancer's presence in the greenwood and what he's doing to the animals and trees and mushrooms and, uh, and, and everything else. Then you get um, Thror and his gold, right? And that was really fascinating, too. The fact is, one of, the th one of, the f one of my first eye-opening moments, you know, that is when they did something, when I watched the film for the first time, where I was like, ooh, that's interesting. I didn't see that coming. And that is when Thror begins to be corrupted by his gold prior to the coming of the dragon. Um, that was a really interesting choice, but I kind of, but I liked it. I was interested by it anyway, and I'll see where it goes. And again, for that, I have to kind of suspend judgment for a year or two, uh, because you know I, it's clearly setting up what's going to happen with Thorin at the end. Um, but I do like the idea because, especially on film, I think that there would be a risk if they did the dragon sickness the way that it happens in the book. They might make it just simply look like some kind of communicable disease that you get from a dragon. Right, and symbolically it kind of is, but uh, but that's not exactly what that theme is about. And um, so having the dragon sickness of Thror, though they didn't use that phrase in the in the film, having the dragon sickness of Thror predate the arrival of the dragon, and even in a sense, the film invites us to correlate those two things together. It doesn't explicitly say that Thror's dragon sickness caused the coming of the dragon. But it goes about 75% of the way to saying that. Remember that business about, uh, you know, where this kind of thing happens, evil follows, right? It's, it, it, it was strongly hinted at, right? Um, and that, I think, is, is a very interesting reversal. But it's a reversal that doesn't reverse the theme, um, but rather emphasizes it, what a big deal it is, and how, how anybody, even... I, you know, we're led to assume, um, you know, a good and strong and noble king like Thror um, is led into, you know, seems to become almost like a kind of addict um, to his gold. Uh, and that I thought was very interesting. And again, we have this idea of, of, of evil spreading, and, and of course spreading outward and then becoming manifested in the arrival of the dragon. It made the arrival of the dragon almost like an allegorical thing. And you know what? Dragons are always almost allegorical in Tolkien. Smaug is like that. Um, the dragon in Beowulf is like that. Um, again, not totally allegorical, but dragons are associated with these strong ideas, um, with the ideas of greed and possessiveness and a kind of selfishness and even vanity that Smaug has, that division of one person from another, the way, the way that he tries to divide um, Bilbo and the dwarf, Smaug does, in the book. All those things, as I talked about in my book, these things are all associated with the dragon sickness. And Smaug himself, he is a character. He's not just an allegory, but he also it's, he is the representative. He is the embodiment of all these things. 
Um, and I thought that that was done really interestingly. And I am fascinated to see where the dragon, how the dragon sickness comes in later. And again, how it connects with the other theme that I was talking about, with the vengeance theme, and the way in which we see Thorin being corrupted in other ways as well. Um, and what can, how those two things are going to intersect, and the connection between Thorin and his drive for vengeance and to, 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 to see justice done and right return and his kingdom be restored to him as he deserves, as it's supposed to be. Um, see how that connects with his possessiveness of the gold. Um, I'm going to be really interested to watch that in the future films. But again, thinking of that other element of the dragon sickness, in my book I spend a lot of time talking about the desolation of the dragon. You know, I use that as a subheading for like the whole second half of my book because I think that um, I find in the book, in the in the in the published Hobbit, that it's really interesting the way that Tolkien does that. That you know, the dragon sickness is not just about greed. It's not just about you know desire for gold. Um, it's also about that kind of isolation. You know, dragons don't only don't. It's not just that they live. They have a bunch of treasure. It's that they live alone. They shut out everybody else, and they live shut up inside a mountain. Um, lying on a pile of treasure, not spending it, not doing anything with it, not caring about it, not caring about anybody else, benefiting in no way. Um, that's all part of the dragon sickness. And to see the divisiveness that comes about as a consequence, the battle of three armies that almost happened prior to the battle of five armies um, is the logical conclusion of that kind of dragon sickness as we see it in the book. Well, I thought that the way that they set that up with Thorin and the Elves was really interesting. I know that you know I've heard from many people who were annoyed at, in particular, Thorin's reaction, or not just reaction to, but his attitude towards um, Elrond and the Elves of Rivendell. I liked it. I mean, again, I liked it because it's another example of seeing this, I was going to say incipient, but it's not even really incipient, um, this um, already forming dragon sickness that he is beginning to have his own bitterness based on his you know based very understandably on his really genuinely terrible experiences have led Thorin to feel embittered uh, towards and he he blame, understandably blames Thranduil um, for what he feels to be a betrayal I'm guessing that in film two we will see another side of that, uh, and that perhaps Thranduil's actions will not be, um, will not seem quite as awful as they did from Thorin's point of view in that particular moment, which is basically how we were introduced to him. Um, but again, so I think that that, um, that distrustfulness of Thorin, um, especially of the elves, and that grudge that he's holding against the elves, and I thought his holding the grudge against the, grudge against the elves of, Mer of Rivendell made a lot of sense was actually really powerful in that way. Because, you know, if he were fine with the Elves of Rivendell, you know, if he, if he had no problem, he was like, okay, that Thranduil's a jerk, but whatever, I got no problem with Elves, um, it wouldn't send up the same red flag. This set up a red flag, and I think was supposed to, and I think does so very effectively, that, um, uh, that he is not just um, in a dispute he is being corrupted, um, and that the evil that has happened um, has is already boring, is already bearing uh, uh, corrupt fruit in Thorin's own heart. Um, 
like the desolation of the dragon, like the way that, that every living thing is devastated in the area where a dragon is. Um, it's one of the most immediate consequences uh, of the, on, the, the onset of the dragon uh, in the way that they do that. And, I, and again, I like that. I thought that that was very interesting. Um, so anyway, so that's so th and then my last sort of half theme, well, just, I call it a half theme because I, I won't spend too much time talking about it, but I really liked, indeed, I was kind of gratified by the, uh, uh, the emphasis on destiny and fate. I really liked like, the portents and all that stuff. I really liked that because um, that, I mean, as you, again, as you know, if you've read my book, I make a big deal about the emphasis on luck and the way that that comes together. It's another thing which really grew in the telling um, and which Tolkien emphasizes ten times more in the last few chapters than he did in the first few chapters. Um, but this idea of this providence that we can see at work um, behind, uh, behind the actions, the events of the story, um, and I loved the way that that attention is drawn to that at the beginning, that we start back in the equivalent of chapter one at the unexpected party with Owen doing his stuff about portents uh, and prophecies. I like that. Um, putting, establishing that framework from the beginning, it makes it make more sense when we come to it later on instead of having it kind of come out of nowhere as it does in the published book. And then, um, and in particular, my favorite thing was Elrond. Uh, when Elrond draws attention to the radical um, chance uh, the, the, the radical good fortune of it's happening to be the one night in which they can see the moon letters, which happen to be on this map, um, and how Elrond immediately calls it some fate or destiny that brought them there that night. Um, I mean, again, as you know, I drew that, con that, that exact conclusion in my chapter three discussion uh, in my book, and I do think that that's very much where Tolkien is taking that, um, and that is a theme which becomes more and more prominent, again, as the more Tolkien worked on that, the more prominent that became, so I loved the fact that that was included, and I think that that's going to that sort of work together pretty well. So, um, uh, those are the major themes that I wanted to comment on, and I hope that I've addressed a bunch of people's concerns. I know that there are, oh wait, before I, let me, I said before that I would come back to one point. I want to make sure I keep that promise. Um, I said I would come back to my advice to people who feel really strongly and hate to see other people go away with misunderstandings about Tolkien. Um, and I said that there's a way that you can kind of turn this from a frustration into a, into a good thing. Here's what I do with it, and that is, um, it's a teaching moment, right? Really great conversations can come around. Um, and, you know, for me, certainly in my, in my actual teaching experience, my actual classroom experience, um, when people are familiar with the films, um, it really opens up a lot of conversations um, to have about Tolkien, which would have been much harder to have if they didn't know the films. So do I find it frustrating if somebody knows only the films and feel like they know Tolkien? Yes, because they're not getting, again, it's not the same story, it's a retelling. Um, I mean, it would be like, it would be like somebody, you know, reading the 12th century French roman Deneas and thinking they know Virgil, they don't. Um, but still, it gives a really good opening to talk about it. But you can't go there 
if you don't take the time to do what I've been doing, what I've been talking about doing, if you don't back up from it and really look at the story of the film on its own and really be able to, to sort of to think about that, appreciate what it's doing, understand what it's doing, and then bring it into compare, now you're ready. Now you're ready to talk to people um, rather than just sort of saying, the film is wrong, and if you like it, you're wrong too. That's a pretty short conversation, and it's not going to help anything, really. Um, but if you can actually meet people there and talk about the movies, um, there are things which it will give you the opportunities, and this is one of the things that I'm convinced helps to bring people to become Tolkien fans, the way in which that, the, the way in which for so many people, sorry, the way in which the way in which for so many people the films have served as a gateway to Tolkien um, because they did sort of see these, they, they might not have been interested in having a conversation with you about Tolkien before they saw the films, um, but now maybe they will, and now maybe you'll be able to get them to read the books, and you can talk about that too. Um, so I would strongly recommend you sort of thinking uh, in that way about those kinds of moments rather than simply being uh, frustrated and or infuriated Okay, I want to come back to some of the uh, some of the sort of smaller points uh, that people have been making. That I uh, I know it's it's been a long time now. Of course, if you need to go, you can go at any time. But I will take a little bit more time uh, to address some of these um, some of these individual concerns. Um, Trip was asking, did Gandalf and the moth ruin the eucatastrophe of the eagles? I know a lot of people were annoyed by the moth. I will say, I think the moth was a very daring move. Uh, on the part of uh, Peter Jackson and company, daring in the sense that, um, I mean, it would be really easy for that to misfire, and I think for many people it did misfire, as seeming simply derivative of the Lord of the Rings films and sort of too overt a connection. Um, yeah, here's one of the things that I think about that. Um, one of the things when you study the Hobbit and the development of the Hobbit story. And this is, again, one of the things I said in the introduction to my book. There are a lot of things which, uh, a lot of not only events but characters, who change significantly between the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. And if we approach the Hobbit thinking about the Lord of the Rings character, it's not going to, and Gandalf is probably the biggest example of this. If you read the Hobbit and you're thinking of O'Loran, the Gandalf of the Lord of the Rings, um, and Unfinished Tales, it's going to be odd. Um, and Gandalf, some of the things that Gandalf says and some of the things that Gandalf does will be quite inexplicable. Um, because Gandalf changes. Gandalf grows and Gandalf develops in Tolkien's mind between the early 30s and the 50s and 60s when he was writing much more and thinking much more highly of Gandalf. Um, what the film does, I feel in that moment, that moment, by the way, in chapter six of The Hobbit, is the most, is the one scene which I think is most difficult to reconcile to the Lord of the Rings Gandalf. Um, Gandalf would not have, Lord of the Rings Gandalf would not have been killed by a group of goblins and wargs dancing around a burning tree. Um, in fact, we see Gandalf surrounded by wolves in a wood which catches on fire in the Fellowship of the Ring, and Gandalf is up to it, right? And in fact, there's that wonderful moment where Sam comments on it. You know, I reckon whatever fate lies in store for old Gandalf, it isn't in a wolf's belly, he says. Well, in A Hobbit, it almost was in a wolf's belly, actually. Um, and the narrator tells us that Gandalf would have died. He was this close to death. He's, he's, he's out. He's done. He's, uh, he has no more resources. He has been beaten 
by these el by these goblins and and wargs, um, and is about to die if the eagles don't appear at that moment to rescue him. Again, that wouldn't be true of the Lord of the Rings Gandalf. It just wouldn't be. Um, that would be a moment. Had Tolkien, Tolkien did, of course, start rewriting The Hobbit in the style of The Lord of the Rings. Had he gotten to that point, I'd be willing to wait to lay money on the fact that he would have made a made some significant plot changes to that moment. I don't think that Out of the Frying Pan the Fire sequence would have looked much at all like it did. Um, he would have made some changes, I'm sure of it. Because, again, that idea is incompatible with the later Gandalf. The film tries to bridge that gap. And I actually like what they did. I like the moth. And the reason I like the moth is it's about the most understated way I think that they could have made Gandalf not helpless in that moment. Gandalf isn't helpless. Um, first he gets kind of pinned by holding up Dory and Ori, right, as they're dangling off. So he's kind of trapped and can't do anything because he's supporting their weight. But also, um, if Gandalf just stands up and does another one of those explosions like he did in Goblin Town and just gets them out of it, well, how much are people going to complain about that, <laughs> right? And Gandalf, the Lord of the Rings Gandalf, in theory, could have done such a thing, but he doesn't do that. Um, so instead, they make the eagles coming be as a product of Gandalf's resourcefulness. You know, that Gandalf thinks of a way out of this and asks the, presumably asks, uh, the eagles for help and brings them in. Um, so uh, so I, I, I actually didn't mind that because, again, I think that they, it's one of the places where I can see them really trying to bridge a gap, to bridge a gap which Tolkien perceived but hadn't bridged yet because he hadn't told that story, hadn't retold that story anyway. Um, so I, th I do think that Peter Jackson and company have to do something. And of all the things they could have done, that one I think is pretty good, actually. Um, so I kind of liked it. Um, but anyway, there's more that could be said about that. But I did say more about it in the Riddles in the Dark episode, which will be released very soon. So you can hear me talk more about it there. Um, OK. Uh, Let's see. Oh, okay, yeah, I should talk about that. Tom Price mentions this in a long list of things that Tom Price mentions. I'm not sure. I think I hit some of them, Tom. I'm not sure I'll get to all of them. But um, uh, let's see. Okay. Um, but the one, Tom, the one I will focus on that I definitely haven't talked about yet but should is Bilbo losing... Um, uh, Bilbo losing, or Bilbo finding the ring. Um, Bilbo finding the ring, okay. Yes, it was different. First of all, I do not object to, there are some people who objected to the mere fact that Bilbo's finding of the ring was different in the Hobbit movie than it was in the Lord of the Rings movie. I don't object to that, actually. I like the fact that they were willing to do that. This is something that Dave and I talked about in Riddles in the Dark a couple weeks before the film came out. And we were saying that, um, you know, we wonder when it comes down to it, if they have to choose between doing something in the Hobbit film which will, be, which will maintain consistency with the Lord of the Rings films or will be a better story, will they be willing to depart from consistency with the Lord of the Rings films in order to tell a better story? Uh, 
and both Dave and I hoped and still hope that they are willing to do that, um, that they will not simply be slavish to everything that they said or did in the Lord of the Rings film, but be willing to depart from that if there's a good cause for it. Um, and, and I think they did that. I think that's the one place we can see most clearly their willingness to do that, um, the, the finding of the ring scene. Um, and I liked it. It was, it was, it was, so that was interesting. Now, some people, some, there are some objections that people have made about the scene where he finds the ring, which I don't agree with at all, which I don't agree with on a, simply on a point of view of the interpretation of the film. I think watching it, I don't think it is at all obvious that Bilbo sees it fall out of Gollum's pocket. The primary reason, we see it, but I don't think Bilbo sees it. And the main reason is when Bilbo notices it shining in the light of Sting, he does a double take, like he didn't know it was there. So he doesn't come out and be like, dude, did that guy just drop a, some, a golden thing? Let me look for that. Oh, yeah, he dropped a ring. Cool. That's not what happens. Bilbo just comes out, and then he accidentally sees the ring. I don't think Bilbo does see the ring fall out of Gollum's pocket. So the fact that, so some people have objected thinking that, that it really changed the dynamic to have Bilbo know from the first moment that he's palming something that, that fairly belongs to Gollum. I, I simply think that's inaccurate. I don't think that's true uh, of the film. Um, the uh, the other thing, you know, some people were objecting about Gollum having a pocket that he kept his ring in. No, that was true. He did have a pocket that he kept his ring in. Um, he has pockets throughout the book, and he talks about it. Even they quote it in the film what he keeps in his pockets: bat wings and uh, 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 goblins, to, you know, stone to sharpen his fangs on, and and all that stuff. Um, you know, the nasty things he keeps in his pockets. Um, we know he's got a pocket. Um, and we know also from the Lord of the Rings that it's, as Gandalf says, it's been long since he wore the ring much. He doesn't just go around wearing the ring. Um, so it makes perfect sense, actually, that he would carry the ring in a pocket. And perfect sense that the ring would fall out, especially with that, that arcing motion of the ring as it falls out. Um, looks so much like it looks when it goes onto Bilbo's finger or when it goes onto Frodo's finger and the Prancing Pony and the Fellowship. Like, that little arcing trajectory of the ring seems to be associated in the film visually with the, um, the willpower of the ring itself and it's, you know, it's choosing to do things. Um, you know, so that, I, I took that close-up scene that slow motion ring tumbling up out of Gollum's pocket as a visualization of the quote from Gandalf in the Fellowship of the Ring where he says the ring, you know, Gollum, you know, Gollum did not lose the ring, the ring left him, right? And that's what I think, that, that's what I understand that they're trying to show there. But now Bilbo's finding of it, um, the finding of it by the light of Sting does make for a difference. Um, and one of the things, but see, it's hard because, you know, one of the things that I think is, it's another difference in medium, Bilbo is in pitch darkness, pitch darkness when this happens. The whole scene with Bilbo at the beginning of chapter five happens when he has no light whatsoever. Um, and completely dark scenes with no light whatsoever no light whatsoever don't work very well on film. Certainly not if they're very protracted. We need to be able to see things. Um, so it doesn't shock me at all that they would change that from change that moment from 
Bilbo putting his hand around in the dark and finding it, to his happening across it and seeing it. Um, so that, I think, uh, that doesn't surprise me and doesn't seem to me a terrible kind of violation. Um, because again, it, it seems necessary um, by the medium. It is every bit as fortuitous. If anything, you, you see what they're doing, emphasizing further what was not emphasized in the book for the very good reason that it didn't exist yet in the book when it was written, the fact of the ring's um, motives, the fact of the ring's act of will, that the ring is choosing to leave him and to find uh, a new master and Bilbo comes across it just then. That connection that they're trying to establish and when he reaches out to get the fact that he sees that it's a ring and reaches out for it on purpose to take it, doesn't know the significance of it or what it is yet or what it does. Um, but again, that seems to me an understandable kind of uh, change. So I'm, I'm still kind of waiting, you know, I don't want to say too much more about it because again, I, I'm, you know, I've only seen the one film, so I, I'm waiting to see where the ring goes. Um, in the next two movies. Um, that will certainly be one of the things that I will be tracking. Um, and I feel that I will have a clear way of, you know, and there are a lot of these questions which yeah, I can't answer definitively yet because I've only seen the one movie. Um, and I'll, we'll see where it goes um, later on. But um, anyway, so um, let me come back to some other um, issues. Yes. Um, the Arkenstone, yes, okay. Um, I do agree with people. I think that the way that they, the, the, the use of the phrase divine right to describe, um, you know, uh, the relationship between Thor and the Arkenstone, I consider that unfortunate. Unfortunate because I think I can see What's going on there? Again, I have to wait because we got so little of the Arkenstone, and I believe we're going to get so much more of it later on that I don't want to say too much because we don't have all that much data yet. But the connection that they're establishing between the Arkenstone and the kingship of Erebor, that is picking up at least on something in the book. The way that the Arkenstone is called the heart of the mountain and the significance it has for Thorin almost in the, in the book, almost as if for Thorin, you know, he won't really, he, he can't really consider himself, he can't really, he's not officially reestablished in his kingdom since he doesn't have the Arkenstone yet, but he's still missing something. Um, and I think it's no coincidence that, um, you know, there's a kind of irony anyway to Gandalf saying you're not making a very, um, you know, a very, a, a, very, a very fine picture of a king, Thorin. Um, and with, you know, the, the irony of Thorin's, that being connected with Thorin's lack of ownership of the Arkenstone, he, does, he doesn't have the heart of the mountain, um, and he really, really wants it. He really wants to establish himself. But of course, his very desire for the Arkenstone and the, the monomania he's developing about the Arkenstone is one of the things which is leading him to making the, the terrible decisions um, that are making him not cut a very splendid figure as king under the mountain. So. Um, so anyway, so that connection between the kingship, the mountain, the kingdom, the king, and this Arkenstone, 
works in general. I think the phrase divine right was a little unfortunate because the ideas associated with that phrase of, of divine right, that is the, the actual philosophical and theological ideas and political ideas connected to that phrase from, uh, from medieval Catholicism are not really appropriate or applicable. Um, and the way that that phrase seems to invoke those themes was kind of jarring. Again, I, I felt like I could see what they were getting at, and I'm fine with what they were what, with what they were getting at, at least as far as I could see um, from the first film. But I, I did, I, I was a little uncomfortable about that phrase. I, 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 uh, I definitely, um, I would have suge suggested or trying to say that same thing in a different way. Uh, but. The th anyway, the thing that they seem to be getting at I thought was interesting, but um, uh, Daniel Bear asks, do you have any thoughts about why the, uh, Fiwi and Kiwi's relationship to Thorin was not clarified in the movie? I, yeah, well, I mean, yes and no. I don't know why, but I thought that was very interesting. It was one of the things I was fascinated by. Um, why? I don't think the word nephew was mentioned, was it, or uncle? I mean, we're not told that they're related to each other, and yet it was connected. Um, the one moment where this connection was pointed to most clearly, and it was still pretty, you know, uh, pretty subtle, was when Balin is retelling the story of Azanulbazar and mentions that Azog was determined to stamp out, to bring to an end the line of Durin. And when he says that, we get this lingering, soulful close-up on Fiwi and Kiwi there. Um, you know, like, here they are, the future of the line of Turin. <laughs> um, that was one of the only times that I said, and again, I never would have thought much of that, I don't think, if I didn't already know it, uh, didn't already know about their connection. Um, well, I'll be interested to see. I mean, we do see them seeming to be more invested, I think, in particular, Feely is the one who is, you know, when the eagles are carrying them away and it looks like Thorin might be dead, Feely is the one, she, Thorin, you know, from the other eagle. Um, so they do seem to care. He does seem to have a kind of a different relationship with them, but it's not um, the way he cry, cries out to them too on the mountains um, with the stone giant sequence. Um, we can see some connection there, but uh, but as for why, I'm not sure. Um, by the way, sidebar here. It is very tempting when talking about this to start asking why questions, which seem to be dedicated towards getting inside the head of Peter Jackson and company. That I don't think very a very useful project to try to undertake. Um, and actually in some ways I would say I don't, to me what matters is not what they were thinking about or what they were trying to do. To me what matters is what is the story that they tell, what have they done? Not what were they trying to do, what have they actually done? Um, it may well be that the story they told is, that, that what we see in the story is different from what they were intending. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. Um, so, I, so I try not to say, like, you know, why do I think Peter Jackson did this? Well, I don't, I don't know what was in his head, but that's not my business, and, and that's not even really what I'm interested in. Instead, what I, what I want to be thinking about is not why did they do this, but what is the consequence of this having been done? Uh, what is the story that's being told? What is the meaning of what is there in front of me? Um, and I don't have, uh, you know, Daniel, I don't have a great answer to that question in regards to this first film because I'm still kind of waiting, uh, still waiting to see where they're going to go. That's definitely one that I'm kind of holding on to. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see, looking at some more 
oh yeah, comments on Thranduil's uh, mount. Um, uh, or to paraphrase, what about the moose? Um, I, and I know it's, it's an elk. I know it's an elk. Everybody knows it's an elk. But I'm not going to lie. When I saw that, I'm like, hey, he's riding a moose. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was like a moose, too. I know it's an elk, whatever. Point is, um, I liked it. I thought it was interesting. And there, you know, it's exactly the kind of thing which um, a lot of, strikes a lot of people as just weird. A lot of people look at this and they're like, that's so bizarre. Why would they do that? Well, actually, it's a traditional idea. Um, elves often did ride on deer um, in traditional fairy tales. Um, you know, in, in traditional sort of fairy and elf lore, that happens. Um, so, you know, in some ways, I actually... Um, and again, we have very little evidence about the elf culture of Mirkwood yet, because we saw very, very little of them in the first film. Um, but you'll remember, if you've read my book, one of the things that I really like about what Tolkien does in Chapter 8 of The Hobbit is to introduce us to this kind of fairy other world that we get in Mirkwood, the, the, the eerie, magical experience they have of passing into the land of the elves. Um, and not knowing if they will be able to escape it. And um, to me, Thranduil riding on an elk um, had something of that element to it. Um, that, um, so that for me, it, kind of, it was sort of mysterious. Um, it certainly was other, with a capital O, you know, these are elves, these are not people, these are not humans. Um, they are not acting in the same way, they do, they do not look the same, they do not think the same way. Um, and I thought that that was actually established uh, in a very striking way by Thranduil riding on an elk. So, um, so in general, I am pro-moose. Uh, but um, anyway, uh, yeah, let's see. Um, <laughs> Yana asks, "Were I as overjoyed? Was I as overjoyed with a good morning scene at the beginning uh, as he was? Uh, I was, Yana, I, and and that was one of the first moments in the no, that was the first moment in the film where I was really rocked back on my heels, and not the last, um, by how much of the dialogue from the book they kept. I didn't expect that. I really didn't." Um, they, I thought, went far out of their way. Another major example being, of course, the fact that the entire uh, uh, Bolor took, you know, golf joke and all, got included uh, very close to the word to the phrasing in the original book. There were a couple moments like that which I didn't expect and surprised me, um, and uh, and so I I, I like that. I was. Um, I was, I was, uh, I, I really did like, uh, like, like that element. Um, okay, let's see. Um, could I comment? Let's see. Anastasia asked, "Could I comment on the Battle of Azanul Bazaar?" Um, sure, of course I can comment on the Battle of Azanul Bazaar. I can talk about the Battle of Azanul Bazaar for almost unlimited periods of time. But uh, um, I will say. You know, again, if you just are approaching it from the point of view of cataloging differences and tallying things that are different, um, you know, the fact that Thor's death happened in the battle rather than precipitating the battle. As you, if you, if you listen to the to the riddles in the dark episodes, you will know that I was cheering against that right up until the very end. On the, our last episode before the film came out, I was still saying, "I hope they don't do that. I hope that." Um, 
I hope that Thror's death is still the precipitating factor for the battle instead of merely a casualty of the battle. Um, and so, I mean, I, that's what I was hoping to see. I didn't see that. But, you know, I, it was fine. I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't offended by it. Um, what it does, you know, what they did do, because, you know, and, and for one reason, again, a medium translation thing, there are many things which are wonderful in the books, which would not look wonderful on film, which would look dumb on film. The poster child for this subset of things is Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil would look like, like a, a lunatic on film. I mean, there is no way that you could do Tom Bombadil, as he's described in the book, and not have people like, you know, lock up your children, you know. Like, I mean, seriously, he would be, he would look like a complete fool. I mean, like, classically, a fool, like a Shakespearean fool uh, on stage or on film. Um, you could make him not look like that, but you'd have to change him. If you make him leap around and dance around and sing the songs that he sings and talk the way that he talks, um, just like he does in the book, he would look like an utter moron on screen, and I think that's inescapable. Um, and, and again, this is no criticism of the book or of Tom Bombadil. I love Tom Bombadil, and I think those scenes work wonderfully in the book, but they would not work well on screen. I feel pretty strongly about that. Um, and honestly, I think that kind of crazy Thror trying to break into, like, waltzing into Moria single-handedly and getting killed would also not look very appealing. I mean, it could be done, but I think it would just end up being really pitiful and Thor, I, I think it would be hard to maintain um, any sort of sense of the dignity of Thor. There's, in a sense, there's almost, I think, in the book, a kind of increased dignity to Thor. I mean, we can see, we can have even more pity for him, for his, for the delusion that leads him to walk into death in Moria. I think there's a bigger chance he'd just look like a git um, if he did that on film. Um, and it, I think it'd be really hard for people to swallow if they saw it happen. So I don't think having it happen exactly as it happened in the book is really a very viable option. Um, but I do think that the way that it worked out was fine. Although I was still kind of hoping that his death would precipitate it, nevertheless, I thought it was I thought it was fine. In fact, I thought it was it created the fact that that battle begins, the cause for the battle as it's described in the in the film was Thor attempting to reclaim bringing his people in a war against the goblins to reclaim their old kingdom having been kicked out of Erebor. We're going to go back to Moria. But remember, there's also notice of vengeance cycle there. Okay, the dragon came and took away Erebor from us. The goblins have taken away Moria. Well, we're not going. We might. We can't do anything about the dragon, but we're not going to stand for the goblins, right? We're going after them. We're going to retake what is. That. So you have both um, the vengeance element and the reclaim our ancestral home element, um, and that's the thing which starts off this. Then Azog kills Thor. Then Thor dismembers Azog. Then Azog or Thorin dismembers Azog. Then Azog comes back after Thorin. This whole you know, sort of escalation of vengeance, um, which is going to, I imagine, 
culminate in the Battle of Five Armies ultimately at the end. Um, so anyway, I was interested in that. Um, I thought that that, you know, again, so though it wasn't what I was hoping for, you know, what I went into the theater hoping to see, um, I thought that it worked. And I thought that the way that it made that into, it made Moria itself, in a sense, like a foil to Erebor, to the Lonely Mountain, um, that, uh, and therefore established a connection between the Azog plot and the, um, uh, and the, the Erebor plot. Um, because otherwise it's kind of a sideline, right? I mean, they're minding their they're not thinking about Azog, but Azog is coming after them and intruding this separate story, um, this, this as an Ulbazar story, which has nothing to do with, directly with Erebor or Smaug, into this, you know, here we are minding our own business, trying to go back and reclaim our kingdom and, and avenge ourselves on Smaug, and this other guy with this separate grievance is coming after us. But it does work, because just as Azog can be seen as a parallel to Thorin, as we've talked about before, so too uh, Moria and their attack on Moria is a foil for Erebor and the attack on Erebor that they're going to do later on and interestingly sets up, I think, the Battle of Five Armies as a, as a parallel thing um, where things are kind of reversed, right? And we go, oh, you came after us in Moria and now we're coming after you uh, at Erebor at the end. So I, you know, I'll be interested to see where they go with it. Um, but, um, but, I do, but I do like that. Um, Okay, let's see. Uh, Mary was asking about, um, uh, yeah, oh, it's, Anastasia asks more detail on her, as an old bizarre question, if the battle was to retake Moria and the dwarves were, were victorious, why didn't they take Moria? Uh, a good question. Well, we see the dwarves, the goblins retreating. Um, but you'll, you know, Anastasia, that's a question to be asked in the books as well. In fact, it's a question that Thran asks in the books, right? When, after the Battle of Azanubu, there's this victory, um, and Thran says that Moria is ours. He's lost an eye. Thran has lost an eye. And, uh, and Dan, I think it's Dan, who has the, the, that wonderful comeback line that says, even with one eye, you should see more clearly. Right? He says, if this is victory, then our hands are too small to hold it. Uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful um, metaphor. Um, and Dan says, plus, uh, don't forget, there's a, uh, the Durin's Bane issue, and, this is, and when Dan says, I alone of you have looked into Moria, he stood there on the threshold of Moria, having just killed Azog, um, and looks into Moria itself, and he says, and it's, it's still there, Durin's Bane is still there, we can't go in. Um, now, they don't explain any of that in the film, I agree. Um, Anastasia, I am suspecting and frankly hoping that when the extended edition comes out, we'll get a little bit more there. I felt that the abruptness of the end of that sequence, that is of the description of the battle and stuff, um, really kind of led me to suspect that, there's, that they, there was originally more there. So, um, uh, <laughs> Eleanor asks, was I disappointed uh, in the pronunciation of Dane and Thrain? Yeah, I was. Um, uh, I was. Um, especially since the pronunciation is good in other ways. Um, I mean, they pronounce glowing properly. They don't pronounce them gloin. Um, and uh, they pronounce, you know, Smaug and Sauron correctly. But, um, uh, yeah, I was a little disappointed. But um, 
that's okay. As I myself, I'm inconsistent in how I pronounce them. I guess I can't really throw stones. Um, yeah, good. Uh, Mary asks, what are my thoughts on the Galadriel-Gandalf-Saruman dynamic? Um, well, Mary, mostly my thoughts are, I kind of, I'm kind of on a wait that, um, especially about Saruman. For me, the jury is still really out on Saruman. Um, and I don't know how much of this is was basically, you know, t I talked about the resources that people have in different media and the, the limitations that they're operating within. Certainly one of the, uh, one of the, the peculiar limitations uh, when it comes to the Saruman plot uh, that um, Peter Jackson was operating within uh, were the physical limitations of Christopher Lee, how he couldn't travel and has not been well. Um, and uh, so I, I think his screen time is really limited. And I wonder to what extent that's going to influence the Saruman plot and the extent to which it's developed um, in these films. Because obviously there's so much opportunity for them to, depict, to, to have a very interesting subplot of Saruman's, either of Saruman's fall or of hints at the fall of Saruman, and I'm not sure what they're going to do. Um, I th it seems possible, based on what happened in the first film, that they're going to be focusing really much more on Galadriel and Gandalf and their connection and their working together. Um, but now I'm getting into speculation about film two and three, which I said I wouldn't do. Um, but in general, I did. Um, I thought it was interesting. Steve is asking about the Galadriel teleportation. A lot of people have mentioned that. Um, I, I actually think people are making too much of that. Um, there is only that one moment where there's sort of this, you know, where she's holding Gandalf's hand and then he opens his eyes and she's gone. I don't actually think that we must interpret that as teleportation having occurred. Um, one of the theories about this that was brought out by um, some of our participants at uh, the MythMoot conference that we had discussing the Hobbit film right after it came out. Um, uh, some, and uh, Trish, I don't know if you remember who it was who suggested this. It might have been you. It might have been somebody else. I can't remember. Um, that uh, it might have been simply, you know, one of the things which is associated with Galadriel in The Lord of the Rings is the kind of dilation of time, how in a large sense they, they lose track of the time that they spend um, that they spend in uh, in Lorien, and uh, you know that there's there's a way in which that moment when she is sort of consoling Gandalf and encouraging Gandalf, and he you know, sort of has his eye closed and he opens his eyes and looks up and she's gone, um, may not be her like vanishing and teleporting herself somewhere else, but simply. Um, her having an influence on Gandalf so that he loses track of time and doesn't realize that how long he's been standing there. Um, and um, uh, yeah, um, yeah. And Trish was sort of making a joke at Mythmoot about it being like a reverse Melian Thingol moment from the Silmarillion, where Thingol meets Melian and uh, uh, and is just you know lost in her and you know is, stands there in stasis for like a couple hundred years or whatever. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, that's right. It was uh, Scott Holbrook Faust's discussion group. Uh, Sarah Legard was reporting it on the the Sunday morning uh, session at Mythmoot. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, um, uh, and the church, the church was joking. And it's reversed that you have a a a, a, a Maya um, uh, Gandalf who is entranced by an elf uh, instead. But um, anyway, I I I think that that. Actually, I mean, that's certainly how it felt to me. Not, I don't think that this was, and it's not she vanished in a puff of smoke. 
um, or something like that. You know, this is just, you know, and then she was gone. So I, I definitely think that that's, um, it definitely had more of that spirit. So I didn't have, I, I didn't, I didn't see any problems with that at all. Um, let's see. Um, Tony asks how I felt about the riddles in the dark sequence and how they handled the ring world when Bilbo wore the ring. Um, I loved the riddles in the dark sequence in the film. I thought it was the strongest scene in the film. I thought they absolutely knocked it out of the park. Does that mean I think they did the same thing with it that Tolkien did, does, did within the books? No, they didn't do the same thing. But they did a really interesting thing. Um, one of the things that I argue is so fascinating about the riddle game in the book as it's done is the way I do, as you know, in my book I do these close readings of the riddles and the ways in which we can see the two different worldviews, Bilbo's worldview and Gollum's worldview kind of squaring off in a way which leads ultimately to Bilbo's act of pity and of compassion that Bilbo has for Gollum and for his situation, which I think is conveyed most powerfully by Gollum's choice of riddles. That, I don't think, was exactly happening in the same way in the film. Instead, though, what they did do was by doing the, you know, multiple personality Gollum that we got so effectively, I thought, in The Two Towers, um, by getting that again, by turning the riddle game sequence into essentially a three-way conversation between Bilbo and, you know, nice Smeagol and bad Gollum, um, that was... I thought really fascinating. I loved how that came off in the film, um, and I thought it worked very, very well. Um, and what it does, although it uses a totally different mechanism, that is not with, you know, the way that we're invited to think about the riddles in the book, but instead, um, I mean, the, many of the same riddles were still there, and you could still do the same sort of thing if you wanted to. But what was foregrounded instead was Bilbo's awareness of what's going, his sort of realization that Gollum is not always with him, right? He becomes aware of the fact, um, I mean, I, I thought this was fairly clearly conveyed, he becomes aware of the fact that he's talking to two different people, and he goes along with the riddle game as a way to keep good Gollum talking, right? And my favorite line was when he says, let's have a game of riddles, just you and me. Right, just, just, just good Gollum and me. Let's 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 not let that other guy talk. The one who wants to eat me, <laughs> right? Um, and I thought that was really, really cool. And so, in particular, what I felt like they accomplished with that was again building up towards the same goal, towards that compassion and empathy towards Gollum by Bilbo, which I thought was done really, really well and set up really, really well in a, with a very different mechanism and in a very different way. Um, but still, to me, that moment, you know, Bilbo's choice not to kill Gollum um, is, you know, still the most important and culminating moment um, of that entire sequence and really, you know, one of the most important moments in Bilbo's life. And um, they, so anyway, so that, that, that I thought they set that up really well. I thought they executed that moment, the moment of him having pity, extremely well. Uh, the performance of Andy Serkis and Martin Freeman in that scene, I just, you know, I, as I said before, I don't have a very, um, I, don't, I don't have a very discerning palate uh, when it comes to appreciating things like, uh, you know, uh, uh, fine cinematography and good acting. Um, I can often be perfectly well pleased with quite bad acting, um, but 
wow, I thought they were amazing. And in particular, the, the facial exchanges between the two of them, when Bilbo's invisible and Gollum is not, uh, you know, in that moment of mercy, was, um, was, was, was really phenomenal. Um, so anyway, so I love that. I just did the whole sequence I thought was, 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 was fantastic. And Jeremiah says, yes. Uh, it says, how pleased were you at the loss of the brass buttons? Sure, they moved the scene slightly and that he escaped Gollum and not the orcs, but it was wonderful to see it. I agree. And Jeremiah, I liked that shift, actually. I thought it invested the loss of the buttons with, I thought, a greater symbolic weight than they had in the original book. I, I like that. Um, in the book, he loses his buttons. Um, his buttons are associated in the book with his civilized past, you know, his civilized world. Um, you'll remember uh, in the book at the beginning of chapter 7 when he's meeting Bjorn for the first time, he's painfully conscious of his missing buttons um, when, he's being, when he's going through a formal introduction, right? Um, well, I thought, and, and it's listed, the buttons are listed as among the things he has lost there at the beginning of chapter 6, right? Um, it comes in the book, it comes at the transition as he's escaping from the goblins. It's the final moment. You know, it's almost like a kind of sacrifice that he has to make. It's, I mean, that's really belaboring something which is done very gently in the book. But, um, but in order to escape, in order to get out uh, of the mountains uh, and leave the goblins behind, he has to sacrifice his buttons. He can't escape with his fancy, civilized, baggins-ish buttons on his waistcoat. Um, the fact that in the film they changed that to that moment when he escapes from Gollum and notice also the moment that he puts on the ring for the first time um, gave a whole new symbolic breadth, I thought, to the loss of the buttons uh, in ways that were pretty cool. It's at the moment that his buttons pop off that the ring pops on. So that kind of replacement, in a sense, his brass buttons with his golden ring um, has a lot of suggestiveness to it, um, which you know, I think like that, 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 that could really have legs. So I mean, we'll see where that goes, but, uh, but I thought that was cool. Um, so anyway, well, I, I, have, uh, I, have, I have kept you long enough, I think, um, this, well, our last Riddles in the Dark episode was longer than this, but this is, I think, the longest solo episode I've ever recorded here in my life. So I think I will have to, uh, I, and, and other things we will have, you know, I will be doing, continuing the Riddles in the Dark sessions, of course. So, uh, you know, there'll be lots of time to talk about uh, some of these things more. Um, and uh, certainly if you, um, if there are things that I've said that you disagree with, I'd be happy to hear from you and we can kind of continue this. I'd be happy to come back to some of these things during the Riddles in the Darks episodes that, that, that are relevant and get back to these things later on. But, um, uh, but anyway, uh, this is, uh, I, I wanted to sort of tell you, both address some of your particular questions and tell you more broadly some of my own thinking about the film and to try to explain why, despite all the differences and all these other things, why I like this movie so much and why I admire this movie so much uh, as uh, a work of adaptation. I think the thoughtfulness what they do in this film and how they uh, um, and how they uh, uh, how they how, how they manage these themes and how they develop these things I thought was very well done very interesting and I felt much closer in line with what Tolkien does uh, in his books um, uh, even than the Lord of the Rings films were so 
Um, so yes, Trish is reminding me to tell people who didn't get their questions answered today to come to the next Riddles in the Dark episode, uh, which should be next week uh, on at about this time, probably next Tuesday. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to get to as many other questions and comments uh, as we can. Well, thanks everybody for joining me. I, I, I'm uh, being able to do some interaction and to get uh, uh, to get some of your um, uh, to, to get some of your to, to get to, 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 to some of your comments and questions on this. But uh, yes, as uh, as, uh, as as Sarah is noticing, it's gotten really. Dark. Of course, I started this by natural light, so I have my artificial light over here. Uh, but it's yeah, it's, it's got. I'm now I'm now podcasting from a cave. Uh, for those of you who are watching the video, seeing my increasingly creepy uh, dark room behind me. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> there, there we are. Uh, see, it's, it's like Loth Lorien. Time has passed, and I look up and say, it can't possibly be dusk already. Um, <laughs> anyway, thanks very much, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining me. So thanks for listening, and Godspeed.